My God, Wendell, it's just all out war. I can't think of any other word for it. Who are these people? Here last week, they found this couple out in California. They rent out rooms to old people, kill them, bury them in the yard, cash their social security checks. Well, they'd torture them first. I don't know why. Maybe the television set was broke. And this went on until here I quote. Neighbors were alerted when a man ran from the premises wearing only a dog collar. You can't make up such a thing as that. I dare you to even try. But that's what it took, you notice. Get somebody's attention. Digging graves in the backyard didn't bring any. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I laugh myself sometimes. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 37. This is also the highlight of your weekends. Yeah. I'm sure, right? I think for uh, you know, for some people out there, maybe it is. Yeah. They sure. wait with bated breath every, you know, speaking all about, week. Speaking about waiting with bated breath, uh, we got the Critics' Choice and Golden Globe nominations dropping, finally. Oh, geez. These were... Uh, not a lot of surprises in Critics' Choice, I don't think. It's all this stuff that everyone's been talking about. Yeah, well, nothing. Uncut Gems maybe sneaking in there was, was a little interesting over it, nothing, really. I, mean, I feel like there's a collection of movies. I can't even think of what, what, what missed. Well, what's the, what's the, what are the nominations so for So the Critic, nominations Critic's in Critics' Choice and Best Picture are 1917, Ford vs. Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, and Uncut Gems. That's the ones. I mean, the, the Farewell, Ford, I guess, would be like. Yeah, the, the Ford versus Ferrari being there instead of a couple of other ones is, you know. I guess Bombshell's not, not, not the, the bombastic film they thought it was going to be. No, it's got pretty middling reviews so far. Um, I guess Hustlers didn't, didn't sneak in there. But then the Golden Globes got to do their Golden Globe thing. Drama, 1917, Irishman, Joker, Marriage Story, and Two Popes popping in there because you always got to always got to nominate two old men. You got to get the two popes playing going. two old men. And then uh, musical or comedy was Dolomite's My Name, Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Rocket Man. A lot of people seem to be testy about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being in musical or comedy, but that, that, they do this shit all the time. But it's Who also fucking cares. It's also a comedy. Yeah, it's mostly. I mean, I I mostly laughed. Yeah, like that is that is clearly a comedy <laughs> film. And director, though, on on the Golden Globes, you know, you got Bong Joon Ho for Parasite, Sam Mendes, nineteen seventeen, Martin Scorsese, Irishman, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then they fucking Todd they fucking motherfucking Phillips nominated Todd Phillips. Well, I was listening to a podcast today that was saying that traditionally the Golden Globes has a female representation problem, and they were everyone's very surprised that Greta Gerwig did not like get this nomination. Yeah, she got nominated for the Critics' Choice. Right, um, and she everyone. So it's, she's it's a, not surprising then that she didn't get represented. If they have a problem, well, no, they. they I think they just assumed that they were going to give it to her, and then they gave it to Todd Phillips instead because 
They're idiots. Because <laughs> um, Joker looks unlike anything that we've ever seen before. Yeah. Uh, and looking at just basically the critic circles that have been going on, uh, Lupita Nyong'o's kind of jumping out in front, winning a, a good handful. Oh, of, is it a um, handful now? I know she got one. No, she's she's been winning. She's been winning quite a bit. Oh, good. Um, she has won. She got nominated for Detroit films. Um, what has she won? Uh, she's a runner-up in the Los Angeles films. Uh, she won the New York Film Critics Circle. Runner-up uh, to who? Scarlett Johansson. Um, I, I'm not gonna look that up. Okay, right now. it's Toronto Film Critics. Um, the Washington D.C. Uh, or area film critics. Uh, I can't remember who she was runner-up to. I think she's the runner-up to, if I remember correctly. Um, she was the runner-up to, uh, I believe, Renee Zellweger. I feel like it's... it's... No, uh, Mary Kay Place for uh, oh, Diane. Diane. Nice. I like Diane. It's yeah, it's a movie. It's fine. I haven't seen it. It's on, I, think it's, if, I think it's on Prime now. But it's, a, it's a, uh, a role that everyone kind of talked about in the spring when there was no movies to watch. And everyone went crazy for Diane and wrote a lot of think pieces about like what a good performance that was and it's not like a bad performance it's just you know it's one of those ones where like the film one some area local area critic circle just decides like we're gonna not give it this one well there's a lot of i've read a bunch of articles it's like oh this is the best best you know performance one of the best performances of the year and it's a lot of it's on a lot of underrated performance lists or you know um under the radar performance lists and it's totally fine it's totally worthy of whatever you want to say about it but it's also not like a showstopper or anything like that um and it's not you know whatever lupita nuanga was doing in us yeah and it's obviously not gonna have been seen by enough voters to even make a bit of a <laughs> impact <laughs> a bit of an impact yeah in, um in the academy. No, 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 no. no. I'll, g- I'll give it a watch though. I haven't seen it. And if it's on, if it's available. I think it's on Prime. It's been out forever. Really. So there's a lot of movies to watch, Tom. A lot of movies. There is. We watched, we watched three this week alone. It's too many. So I guess we should probably move on to the beers if we're going to be talking about three movies uh, in our A block. Yeah. Uh, this is our friends over in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Uh, I talked about this Imperial Stout last week. This is the David Lee Roth. Not huh. David Lee Roth. Look, see, it's an adverb. David Lee. Oh, David Lee. Yeah. This is an imperial very clever, stout very clever. with a uh, vanilla, cocoa, almond, and toasted coconut. Uh, it's a newer type of uh, beer they, they brewed. Uh, I had it a few weeks ago. Thought it was delicious. Thought thought it was subtle. But apparently, according to the brewer, uh, who I talked to for a bit, it was green at the time, so it wasn't really had it mellowed cut, out. Are we going to cut to an interview? No. Ah. Should have. Should have been like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we should both carry portable recorders. And um, this is also a ten point five percent beer, because that's what we're doing now. It's got a nice color, though. That's a beautiful color. It poured super smooth. It looked like a milkshake coming out. And if smoothness is what it looks like, smoothness is what it tastes like to me. That is delicious. That is a. That is what is to me. You know, you ever get chocolate ice cream? In the in the liter and one point five liter container or whatever. I know where you're going. I know you get where the you're bottom. Going. You get the bottom of the melted ice cream in the bottom. Yep. It's warmed up a bit. And you got those last couple scoops. Mm-hmm. It's not really cold anymore, but it's just like that that thickness. 
that thick melted like melted milk fat. Yep. That's what it tastes like. And it coats the tongue like that milk fat. It has Here's... a great mouthfeel. It's so creamy. Hmm. I don't yeah. get a lot of like coffee, but which I guess you would they, they don't say there's coffee. I get you get a lot of almond, uh, not so much toasted coconut. No, here's and a that's lot of chocolate. A lot of chocolate. My one criticism, I think, is that it's it is tastes very good, but all those flavors are a little bit muddled. I kind of want to have that. Was what was really interesting about the chocolate sweater last week, the toasted coconut chocolate sweater, is that you can kind of get all the the hints that it was dropping. This one, maybe because I don't know, maybe because it's still cold, maybe. It's still, I mean, it's very, very good. I'm going to tell you this, though, Tom. We have uh, just, just hit about here on this <laughs> little growler. When we're down a couple more inches, I'm sure the taste won't even matter. <laughs> yeah. This is basically like drinking. I was, I was, when I was driving back, I, I was thinking about this. This is like if we had a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka and each drank a fourth of it. If we drank all of this. Critically. Great, Mario. <laughs> looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to hour four of this episode. <laughs> oh, God. Um, it might be hour four because we're talking about three films this week. All three uh, can be viewed right now on Netflix. Because mm-hmm. we're even doing a lot of going out to the movies and, you know. This get, was nice. Get spending. You know, it's, it's nice to, to see some good art house films and one, you know, movie they didn't cost a lot to make. But they definitely put a lot of prestige behind um, to, to be able to sit at home and enjoy it. Uh, what, what are we doing first here? We didn't talk about it. We're going to do uh, Atlantics first. Oh, we are? Okay. Yeah. Did you do the clips? Is it going to be a Maria Oudan 10 days with Omar? Is it going to be a good one? I'm going to be a Atlantics is directed by uh, Mandy Jupp. From 35 Shots of Rum? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that was cool. That was a good, that, yeah. was, a nice, that was a nice find. Yeah. Um, Our feature uh, directorial debut. Takes place in Senegal. Um, a kind of, I don't know, like the future. Yeah, it's 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 near future alternate um, kind of universe. I would, say, I would say near future. Senegal still like deep within the bastions of poverty. Like but it's it also today. got a humongous space age style apartment building hotel thing that's sticking out of the ocean that just hangs out in the background in a lot of shots. It's, it's somewhere that um, Dwayne the Rock Johnson was definitely hired to be head of security for. You think? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's sky, yeah. So sky skyscraper too. Yeah. He's got he's got some interesting things waiting for him in that <laughs> next movie. Um, in the when the movie opens, uh, a bunch of the workmen are um, trying to get paid. They've been working for three 
four months almost without getting paid, paid on this on the work site in the in like there's like a tower of babel quality to like those opening shots where like you see this huge tower and then you see a bunch of people kind of coming in and out of like uh open like concrete doorways and stuff like that it just seems like they're gonna go on forever and there's even like a spiral quality to the tower you know what i mean well, it was interesting it actually looked a lot like with like that that cgi shot of the tower and then, like, the, the abject poverty around mm-hmm. it. It looked a lot like uh, some of those shots, establishing shots, reminded me heavily of District 9. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Neil yeah, yeah. Movie. A lot, but this was more open. This I, I liked mm. how open this was. You no, know, I, was I, just like, bet, I just bet when you're no, seeing no, 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 the yeah, CGI yeah, yeah. tower, like, it's, compared with it's something the that's, poverty. Yeah, yeah, um, One of these gentlemen, one of the leaders, I guess, is Suleiman. Um I'll try to pronounce their actual names as best I can. It's Ibrahima Traore. Um, he wants his money. He's speaking on behalf of everyone. Then he gets on a gets on the back of a truck and he's gonna go. He's gonna go see his girl. He's gonna go see Ada, played by Mame Binetta. Sane. That's a three name. Ada is engaged to be married, but she's her and Suleiman are in love. But Suleiman and a bunch of his friends, they go out to sea. They're going to go to Spain. They're going to get real jobs that pay real money. And we find out... Suleiman himself is dealing with terrible debt. He's having like... Well, he's, they're supporting their whole families. Their families, stuff, yeah. their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters. Ada gets married. Um, to Omar. To Omar. I don't have his name written down uh, here. Babakar uh, Silla. There you go. Um... At the wedding, she hears that someone has seen Suleiman, even though she's heard she knows that he died at sea. Someone also lights her marriage bed on fire. Uh, Issa, detective, the hotshot detective. I liked how they said a hotshot detective. Like there's hotshot detectives everywhere. Um, Always played by Amadou Mbao, um, is tasked with finding out what happened here. While he's finding out what happens, he keeps falling asleep and keeps passing out as it gets darker. Something else that happens is that all these, all these girls, all these women that are, that, are, that are around, at some point, we see them with their eyes turned white. Very milky. Walking across streets and groups, and they end up at this guy's house, and they're asking for their wages. And it turns out that they are... They've been inhabited with the spirits of the men who died at sea, um, immigra- uh, immigrating to Spain. It's hard to kind of just I could you could go into point by point to go further is to do like a point by point thing and then this happened and this happened and this yeah, happened. Yeah, that's it's not. I mean, you know, the wages are paid. Um, we get to see a couple more scenes of of, of these people and so, Isa included. Yeah, Solomon eventually kind of inhabits Isa. Isa and and we see him in the mirror. You can see them. There's a great scene of, of all the of all the boys sitting in the cafe that they frequent. Um, you see them in the mirror, but in the in reality, like they're just all the women with their white eyes, like drinking alcohol and just sitting sadly. Um, and that's I mean that's kind of it's. It's kind of a slow burn, kind of a very slow burn. Like not a lot happens. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of kind of kind of conversations via um, cell phone. There's a lot of like talking about cell phones. There's a lot of cell. Phone. 
phone ringing because I guess it's really meaningful to have a cell phone. Um, but you thoughts? Uh, I I didn't particularly enjoy it. That's not to be a slight to the film. Um, it it feels like it's yeah. That that Mati Diop is 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 kind of throwing a lot of balls in the air, mm-hmm. trying to deal with um kind of like fantastical supernatural like romance story um the, the sweeping vistas you know uh, dealing with with the the kind of endlessness of poverty but also the endless potential you get those long shots of kind of like the ocean mm-hmm. um and then also dealing with like the ideas of abject poverty and uh like the class struggles you know like like omar's pretty pretty wealthy pretty mm-hmm. affluent um you know he that that's very you know, detached from what Solomon is. And to me, it felt like she was, she was going in so many directions and she was trying to handle so many socio-political ideas while also kind of keeping this, this, you know, Solomon, Ada, Isa kind of weirdly as he gets possessed love story has, has like a framework. Mm-hmm. Um, to me just didn't work as well. It's, it's, it's not, it, it feels bloated. Um, in a sense that, that I kind of found myself ebbing in and out of the film because mm-hmm. there wasn't a consistent kind of narrative tone. It would it would kind of it seems like some of the romance parts were really centered, and even the the parts where Issa is kind of doing like the detective research, like that conversation he has with um, Solomon's mother, mm-hmm. and so and she's like, "We've seen my son, blah blah blah," or like, "You my son's every that entire yeah, part." Yeah, yeah. Um, has has a kind of like urgency to it. But then there's these other parts, especially with the the women inhabited spirits, um, that, that feels kind of to slow down and to to not have that urgency. There's a kind of a lot of cyclic talking of like redemption and um, I don't want to say re- I guess retribution in a sense, like with him digging and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, that ruins a narrative flow, and it just feels like there, there's a she was trying to take on a lot. And it just didn't hit the mark for me. See, it's so funny because I had, like, the opposite reaction, not just in as a whole, because I really liked this movie a lot. And I there's a lot of things that I like. There's a lot of pieces about it that I like. Yeah, I'm it. definitely not calling it a bad movie. No, 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 no. It's, no. it's, like, it's definitely, like, an honest shot. Yeah. Um, but the things I found least affecting were those moments where he was talking to Suleiman's mother or, like, when there was, like, a lot of people, like, you know, or when Ada was talking to her, um, to uh, Fanta and Dior about just like what she was going through and like all that other stuff. When all the girls were together, blah blah blah, taking like the selfies on the bed. Uh, yeah, portion, not or? so much that, but like after when they were on the um, the terrace there, when oh, they were right, on that right. balcony and they were kind of talking. And um, I, all those really quiet shots, I like of them sitting of like the uh, like the women with the ghost eyes. That shot of Issa like handcuffed to the window like when he passes out type of stuff i loved that stuff i could she could have cut away to the ocean like 50 more times and i would have been totally cool with it i fucking loved it it was great it was it was like otherworldly and like vaguely spiritual but like i didn't know how and i thought it was a mistake no maybe not a mistake that was a mistake for her to try to make it still like a, a like a detective like have like a detective story in the middle of it. I was just like I just wanted her to get rid of the detective story and just do all of possessed people trying to get like their money. You know what I mean? 
Um, what's, because what's, that gave me a lot. To, it, it gave me a lot to think about. It gave me a lot of. It gave, it threw a lot of dots up in the air and like kind of asked me to connect them somehow. And I, I and I liked it. And I, it felt good. Well, I think I think what's interesting to me is I, I really kind of compare this to to a film from the similar region from Ghana that came out earlier in the year that was a film I, I love and still pretty high up on on my list for the years. Barrio Kojo, mm-hmm. which heavily dwells into this kind of um, fantastical fairy tale nature of like Ghani's legend, but also contrasting that with, with the incredible poverty and the um, exploitation of workers uh, by a you know, more affluent class. And, and that film also kind of has that duality of, of, a, of a fantasy aspect of it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not has super, it's not necessarily supernatural like this is, but it deals with that fantastical element of a child's imagination contrasted with you know this kind of real story of miners who are trapped mm-hmm. in, a, in a diamond mine and i just felt myself comparing those two because burial of kojo is just so much more concise and, mm-hmm. and keeps those two narratives kind of really closely bound together yeah and they work from a point that they they add to the pathos and the, yeah, the, the yeah. story that is that's being told whereas this kind of felt really disjointed there's you know, a- that romance and that that kind of overarching social political story don't feel so connected. You're not wrong, and I think the reason that that is the case is because I actually don't think that there's a big socio political story here. There's a socio political foundation, I think, to some of like the spirit, like the vague spirituality that's kind of or supernaturalness that's like placed on top of it. But I think ultimately those questions about class and like the retribution that comes in the, in like terms of like the paid wages and the the dug grave and stuff like that has less to do with writing a socioeconomic wrong than it does addressing some kind of like spiritual Miscuity. way of 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 confronting those things you I, know I, mean? I guess so like the the the, the entire por- there is portions of kind of like ada foregoing kind of those material goods that would be more to the affluence. Like the part where they love the bed. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. And she's kind of indifferent to it. Or mm-hmm. the part where she just doesn't care about the phone and sells it. Um, I, I can see that. And and I, I would agree that that is more probably about the story of just these people. And, and you know, like that is the, the foundation of which you rest. Um, at the same time, there's there's those elements there that exist to tell that kind of social story like, oh, like like that class well that's what struggle. i'm saying is that there's she's put a bunch of like you said in the beginning like, yeah like, it just feels she put a bunch of stuff on the table and she didn't like connect all of them yeah it feels like uh, it really it ends up feeling because it's not so connected effectively it feels kind of like grizzle um and i guess that that's what was troubling to me not troubling but that's what was um unfortunate for me was the fact that like there is really good bones of yeah. a good foundational film and there's some amazing shots like when esau Oof. and adar kind of like dancing under like that neon light yeah um and and you know that that fatima al kadiri score like that the oh music my god it's just so oh solid oh my god i mean um, the sun go that the, the sun going down there's two shots on this that are that i'm like i can't stop thinking about it's like that one shot of like the sun actively going down and then maddie jeff obviously has seen stalker like a lot of times because that shot of suleiman on the truck mm-hmm. like as he's going away, when he's obviously like putting together 
like what he's going to do. You know what I mean? Like he hasn't seen Ada yet. He's leaving the job site. He's going to go see Ada. But he's obviously, you could just see the gears the turning inside of his place. head. But it just it's just on him. You know what I mean? But like life is still going on around him. There's guys that are putting their hands on him. There are people talking in the background. Um, Singing. But it's just, it's just like right there. It's just like right there on him for such a long fucking time. And I'm like, a, just I'm just a sucker for that type of, like movie making, you know what I mean? And she's obviously there's a, a there's a good confidence here, you know what I mean? There's I love the idea that she didn't feel like she had to explain everything. She just kind of let it hang and hoped that it worked well enough. And sometimes it didn't, and you know, sometimes well, it did. Um, but it's just it was a cool, it was a it was a good movie, and it was awesome that it was on Netflix, and that I didn't have to like make a decision to see that or like something else I mean, or miss it or something. It's interesting because there's. There's like a looseness to it that's that's similar to like Claire Denis Chocolat, um, mm. that that's there. But it's just like Claire Denis, like comparing it to like those early Claire Denis films like Chocolat, it, they that has or Thirty Five Shots of Rum. I mean, I, I don't want to compare it with Thirty Five Shots of Rum because that's like decades but of, it's of a, experience. But later. it's a visual patterning that that Maddie Giappa just not is not an expert at yet, like yeah. Claire Denis is. Like she's there's there's worlds of potential there yeah, yeah, yeah um but it's like she needs to find a way kind of i mean she's got to find a way to better connect those two narratives together if she's trying to tell those like big world stories yep. or um you know she just needs to learn to like pull back and just you know maybe save some ideas for other films mm-hmm. yeah so um speaking of of not saving ideas <laughs> mario um, are we doing the are we doing the animated feature next? Uh, we are. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, this would be the Jeremy Clapon uh, directed film, which would go on to win the Nespresso Grand Prize um, at the Cannes Film Festival, the first animated film to do that in the section's history, according to Wikipedia, because that's what I usually <laughs> use. Um, this is I Lost My Body. relation to thing wakes up inside of a refrigerator in a appendage dismemberment lab of a hospital it searches the paris streets for its body reminiscing often about experiences in its past from its when it was attached to an unseen body remembering how that body wanted to become a pianist or an astronaut or both, both. at the same yeah. time. Uh, Epis, concurrently, as it would seem, uh, Nofel, a down-on-his-luck pizza delivery boy who struggles to make deliveries on times, uh, delivers a pizza one day to Gabrielle after an accident. He is late again. 
but they have a really interesting, long, quasi-existential conversation. And Nofella becomes obsessed with Gabrielle, following her around the town like like the Joker did in that Joker movie. Yep. But, Just like that. But better, because this movie's better than the Joker. Um, a little bit. Uh, eventually, as he's following her one day, he uh, stumbles upon her delivering medicine to her uncle. Um, and he finds an old ad for an apprenticeship, because the uncle is a carpenter. Mm-hmm. He takes on the carpenter job as he tries to get closer to Gabrielle. Um, and could currently we intersperse with the hand trying to make its way back to the body which we has expected to find out was Nafael's hand mm-hmm. uh, cut off in a word working accident um, the hand and him were kind of reunited but then the hands kind of moved on in, in a way uh, and Nafael is kind of really depressed but then he jumps on a crane and it's okay that's what I do when I'm sad don't you? Uh, on the on the bird. <laughs> Don't you jump off the top of the pivotal film towers? On on the cranes, yeah. Yeah. I just I, if there's a crane beneath the pivotal film tower, I jump off <gasps> it, fall hundreds of stories, yep. and just snap its neck. Um. As we begin, thoughts. Um. Let's, I, let's start the low thought, and we're, like we'll do that again. What's the low thought? Well, last time I had lesser opinions of Atlant- of Atlantic. I love the fucking shit out of this movie. Oh, okay. I loved it. Okay, here's yeah. the thing about this movie. When you said, oh, when you said when you said sort of, I was, like, I was kidding. Oh yeah, no, this is fucking great. Woof. I um was with its problems, but its problems well, are you know what well I'm, covered up. I'm okay with whatever problems it might have. We'll discuss its problems. Let's, let's, yeah, let's, okay. Let's, uh, let's pontificate on our love. It reminded me a lot of. Maybe I shouldn't start here. The By the first... way, this is, this is also co-written by uh, Gallimay Laurent, who did um, Amelie. Yeah, and he wrote... Or co-wrote Amelie. And he wrote the book for this? Wasn't this a book first? Yeah, it was based on The Happy Hand, which I... Yeah, but which he, he, wrote. He, he did write, yeah. yes. Um, the, those, fla- those early flashback scenes of The Hand, like, remembering its existence attached to the boy that it was attached to and all those other things, kicked... My motherfucking ass, Mario. I was I couldn't even fucking take it anymore. It was yeah. it was one of the most uh, so there's a movie I will go there. So there's a movie that came out in 2016. It's called Notes on Blindness. It's a documentary about this guy who when he was going blind in the 80s started making audio tapes of his experiences with blindness. And the documentary kind of um reimagines those things. So it's just kind of this extrasensory um experience of living without the ability to see stuff, but you kind of know what it looks like. And the film kind of, the, the documentary kind of captures that. You know what I mean? It kind of it doesn't dramatize it per se because it's not making it up. It's it's going along with the, the, um, the narration. But it's just kind of these, you know, the things you kind of take for granted in life elevated to like miracle status. You well, know what I mean? Yeah, and that's there's what a, that whole a... opening thing was just like, Oh yeah, beyond like the, the catching of the fly kind of motif that gets revisited and is involved in the accident, the, the one shot that just keeps, you keep seeing over and over again, that, that isn't really at all related except for like the happy memory of the past before like everything goes to shit um, for him is, is just the hand in the sand. 
Yeah. You get that shot oh my three or four God. times. And it's, you know, I don't, I don't think they reanimate it. They just redo, they reshow it. But every time it's so lyrical and it's, you know, supported by that, that score. Which There's fuck, another that fucking, fucking score. score. Another one. Uh, Dan Levy of, he's half of. The Do? The Do, yeah. I mean, this pronounced. Yeah. <laughs> pronounced very English. There's a. There's a cross through that O, yeah, which yeah, means yeah. that it's probably pronounced in a way well, they're, we don't they're know. Well, they're a Finnish-French, like, multi, you know, instrumentalist band. Like, that's, that's a, definitely not that's pronounced many the years of French, so, uh, like, I, I could follow this movie along, but when it comes to Finnish, I would just be like, rah, rah, rah. I don't know. I'm not even going to try. Um, what I found particularly great about this film, um, beyond, like, the fact of, like, it's that entire journey of the hand, the, the oh separated journey, so fucking harrowing. Like, that... The romance in itself, to me, is is, is a little typical. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's very that's, eternal that's sunshine fine. of the spotless mind. Yeah, exactly. And and or you know, like even the following her, he has like those those motifs of of a really socially awkward person mm-hmm. who doesn't know how to interact with somebody. Um, but the entire journey of the hand traveling through is some of the more harrowing moments in in film so far this year. I, you feel bad for a pigeon. Mother, yeah. trying to protect it's, it's it's young, like and all it's trying to do is just knock the hand out of a gutter, you know. And then the, the hand grabs around its throat because it doesn't know what else to do. It's trying to survive, and it gets dragged along, and finally its neck gets snapped from the well, gutter. But before and that, it feel... bashes the shit out of its its eggs with its yeah. wings, struggling to like get free. It was, oh, yeah. it was upsetting, but also amazing. But then you know, like you know, so you feel bad for that bird. You feel bad for the mother because it's a terrible situation to be in. And then when the hand falls into the garbage can, you see the bird kind of getting sucked under and to be crushed as mm-hmm. the, the garbage. It's just so depressing. And then that shot of the rats. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Eventually the hand makes its way to the subway. Um, and just the speed of which that, that, sh- that scene moves. Just, just slowly licking the, um, mm-hmm. the, tomato, the tomato juice yep. from the can and just sniffing it. You know, it's, it's a minute-long, almost minute-long sequence of just leading into what you know is going to happen. Yeah. And that's what I think I, I really loved narratively about this film is everything is earmarked narratively. Um, you know, early on, it doesn't say who the hand belongs to. You know, you're you fairly know confident not who felt. the hand belongs um, to. Yeah, it, you know, you you figure out that like when he finally explains to her that he he pretends to be a delivery boy for sushi instead of pizza, and he's kind of like built up this narrative. And when he finally reveals it to Gabrielle, like she responds appropriately, disgusted. Um, the constant flashbacks to his parents. Mm-hmm. You know. You know now he's not living with his parents, and he, they're fairly well to do. He was what Moroccan, I believe. Mm, um, I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, he's he's fairly well to do. His his parents were highly educated. His mm-hmm. his father, you know, I don't think you remember where his father does, but you know, his father's really well read. His mother's a cellist. Um, you know, something bad's going to happen. You see that shot of the car, uh, mm-hmm. the car ride, and eventually leads to them dying. Um, what I found great though is is when he finally does the dive for the crane the way that film's been built up it kind of makes you expect that he's not going to make that jump mm-hmm. or it, it like that's kind of been building to that yeah you don't have and, sorry go ahead and and what i found great and just like in a film that just does a lot of callbacks 
you know, kind of, kind of really frames itself well. You know, like you don't, they don't mention the fly since the beginning until that scene where he gets his hand chopped off. Mm-hmm. The fact that he makes it is almost a callback to that, that talk of fate of making that jump. Mm-hmm. And so the film at that point, you could kind of been able to tell where it was going, you know, where each step was going to take you. But when he's just kind of laying there, Nafel at the very end, just like laughing on the beam, you, you don't know anymore. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of that nice idea of like the hand feels like it's destined or fated to do whatever the body responds to it. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, like he felt he's destined to do because of where his life's taken him, you know, he's destined to kind of be on this road. And then when he makes that jump, it, it's a narrative. It's a great narrative finish mm-hmm. to kind of just say, like, you don't know what's next now. It It, it, it is no longer kind of following this na- this this straightforward narrative construct and i just really enjoyed that decision well it's just there's a there's a really brilliant poetry to the idea of the hand and nafel having separate journeys and nafel's journey i don't know what you would say that its problems are but i think one of the problems of this movie is that like maybe it's not a problem maybe it just seems like a problem when you're watching it is that the hand stuff is so exciting and Nafel's stuff for a long time is just really like, just these long stretches of conversations between him and Gabrielle or long stretches between like him and, you know, um, Gigi or whatever. Just boring, you know what I mean? So the hand is living this harrowing existence trying to like, like find its, you know, person yeah, again. The most harrowing thing that happens to Nafel is before getting his hand cut off is not reading a note to not open the door while his roommate <laughs> yeah. has sex with somebody. Yeah. Um, but that there's like a really beautiful poetry to like the idea that we're all we're not just like the one thing there's like all these other stuff like each part of us doesn't have its own experiences but like we're kind of made up of all of these these sensory things you know the, the idea that the, the kids always recording Sound, you know what I mean? There's, it's it's a very sensual. Which is another movie. great, another great scene when right. Gabrielle listens back and hears him make that jump. The sound design on this is fucking fantastic. It's a it's a really kind of wonderful movie, and um, again, it's a positive. People have been talking a lot about like, you know, the next way that we watch stuff. Um, this is the reason why this Netflix shit is good, because I where how long. If at all, does this movie play at Criterion for a week? Maybe if it shows up at all, maybe a week. And it plays in the Blu-ray, Blu-ray screen. But I can watch this again. You know what I mean? I can vet it and show my. I can vet it like I did, and then I could just like skip till after the bird gets killed because I know they're not going to want to see it, and like, you know, show my kids because it's kind of amazing. Yeah, there's, there's nothing it's too. Well, all the it. all like the risque stuff or like real ultraviolet stuff is all in the beginning. So like the sex scenes in the beginning, like the bird getting its neck snapped, like the hand, well, get, the hand, the hand eh, cut off. So. They, they wouldn't care. It's a cartoon getting its hand cut off. They're fine. They've seen the Black Knight. They've seen all the limbs and get cut off. They don't care about that. Um, but I mean, it, this is a. I mean, I, I think we're going to be talking about this movie more um, yeah, later. Right now, it's, it's in the definitely year. the front runner for. One category of mine. Well, yeah, me too. I mean... <laughs> well, I'm not talking about animated film. I'm talking about another category. Yeah. Best disembodiment. 
Yeah. It's a big, it's a big new category this year. In the Oscars, instead of popular movie, they're being doing best disembodiment. Or best hand performance. There was, there was the animated, there was the animated Adams family. That's true. So it was a better hand. Probably some good hand performances. If we actually look back through all the movies, but you can see a couple of good hand sequences in there. Um, I don't know if there's any good hand sequences in our next movie, Mario. Do you remember? Oh, you know, I'm sure Laura Dern does something with her hands. That She does okay. something with her hands. Um, <laughs> Ray Liotta doesn't. I love her. I love Ray Liotta in this movie. Uh, we are talking, obviously, or maybe not obviously, the Laura, the new Laura Dern Ray Liotta movie. <laughs> uh, now showing on Netflix, uh, Marriage Story. Charlie and I are getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Dreamer! Charlie Bird! <laughs> Mom! <laughs> Mom? Most people in my business, you're just transactions to them. I like to think of you as people. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> you remind me of myself on my second marriage. Baby, I'm amazed the way you love me all the time. Part of what we're going to do together is I tell you your story. Did you dye your hair again? No, this is me. You don't like it? Is it shorter? I prefer it longer, but... How are you doing? I'm so excited for this to be the first podcast that gets, like... A copyright claim because we had that song playing. I didn't know that was in there. Whatever. You got a Randy Newman fucking score and you're going to play some Paul McCartney. Maybe I'm amazed during the trailer. Idiots. Um, yeah, so this is no... Really quickly, by the way. Three for three on scores. Oh, I don't know about that. I like, I like this Randy I Newman didn't, score. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't jive with it. You know, I liked it. And I'm so fucking mad at myself and this is because I'm just like stressed out and my back fucking hurts and there's just like a million things going on. He he doesn't borrow it. He definitely doesn't borrow it from like another song. But there is another song that sounds exactly like most of the score. And I thought of it last night, and I was like, "Pa!" It took me a whole movie, and I thought of it, and it clicked in my brain, and I got it. And now I don't remember what it is. I should have fucking wrote it down, but I didn't because I was doing other stuff. Um, but Marriage Story is uh, the new Noah Baumbach movie. It is uh, written by him as well. It stars Adam Driver as Charlie. It stars Scarlett Johansson as uh, Nicole. They are married. They're living in New York City. They are. He's a director, a writer-director of theater, avant-garde theater. She is uh, the star of those things. And when we meet them, they're getting a divorce. And she is moving to L.A. for what Charlie thinks is going to be a short period of time because she's doing a pilot for a terrible TV show. Very environmentally inaccurate. <laughs> How so? Well, because they have the UCLA. Is that is that Car- is that Carter? By the way, the the, uh, the guy she ends up with in the end, who's like the UCLA um, like consultant. On oh, it. I don't know. Yeah, I meant to look that up, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, He's only introduced in one scene. I will look that up now. They both recruit lawyers to help them in their divorce proceedings. Laura Dern plays Nora Fanshawe. I wonder if that's a Nathaniel Hawthorne reference, and I want to investigate that further. I'm not sure what the Fanshawe story means to this, but whatever. Um, Adam Driver first gets Burt Spitz, played by Alan Alda. Well, first he gets the Ray Liotta character, Jay Mariota. Jay Marota. No, sorry. Ray Liotta plays Jay Marotta. Um, and then he gets Burt Spitz, but then he gets Jay Marotta again. Uh, there's a 
Julie Haggerty performance in here, which is great as oh, Nicole's I love, mother. I, I love, love having Julie Haggerty as comic relief. Me Just too. Doing Julie Haggerty. Things. I love it. Uh, there's a Merritt Weaver in here as uh, Nicole's sister Cassie, who doesn't get enough to do. You would think that Merritt Weaver would command more things to do in a movie, but that's fine. Um, I don't know. I took such a deep breath. Um, I don't know. What I don't know what to say about it. It's yeah. fine. You? Oh, I loved it. I loved it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was all right. Um, it was good. It was, are you a Noah Baumbach guy? I like other than because we both I, like I, Squid I and I the love Whale. Squid and the Whale. Yeah. Um, but this felt like a, a kind of more. It's Squid and the Whale, and, and we always say, I hate I hate to use the word pretension, um, and like Squid and the Whale meant to be pretentious, but like I, 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 pretension is not a good way of ever reviewing a film to me, unless um, it's pretentious, but. There is a certain inauthenticity to a lot of Noah Baumbach films that's covered in this layer of, I don't necessarily want to say mumblecore, but it has an inherent value of like the mumblecore cinema. It feels like a kind of like Mark Duplass sheens on a lot of his films. Well, I, I, um, yeah, maybe. It's just there's a weird elitism to like a lot of his movies, which I don't respect. Like, yeah, and there's, 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 there's like this pseudo It feels like. He, he usually gets a, a, a smart story, a kind of human story, and puts this gloss over it that kind of gives it this artifice. That there is – people were once speaking like people, but now they're being a little too clever for their own good. Um, like Greenville kind of has that Green, – Green, Greenberg has that problem. See, I didn't like – I didn't I like, like Greenberg at all. No, I didn't like Greenberg at all. Um, I know Brett Easton Ellis thinks it's like an L.A. classic, and I'm just, <laughs> just like, I'm not sure what movie you're, we're watching, but, but – to me, this removes a lot of that, and 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 there's definitely those like, like Charlie in himself is kind of kind of has that that pretentiousness to him. But as he gets more and more kind of flustered and cornered, um, I don't want to say necessarily cornered by like Nora and and the attorneys because yeah, the, the, cornered those, is fun. The, I think like, is a good the, word. The attorneys are definitely kind of like the antagonist in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and, and general kind of like shittiness of, of both. Not both people to of, of Nicole and Charlie in certain aspects of their life, um, but when it gets cornered, like that gets removed. That scene gets removed. And I really thought that that kind of like argument scene was was pretty solid. Yeah. Like it was it was underwritten. I think it could have been I an think, extra five minutes. I think that's good though, because I think he over, and I think that's probably I think Bombeck overwrites himself. There's too much cleverness. Like I said, there's too much overwriting to Bombeck. And, and we talk about Squid the Whale, but when like Laura Linney. And um, Jeff, Jeff Daniels. Daniels are after he has the heart attack, and like he makes that like kind of like fuck you gesture, that that kind of like I can't remember exactly the line there. Uh, I can't either, but I know he's talking about. It's funny, but it feels so much like theater. It feels it, it but, feels like you're see, not watching people. Anymore. I disagree. I don't think you're wrong, but I disagree with how it feels because that one feels better. It feels more interesting. It feels more. In line with the aesthetic that he'd established throughout like the whole movie, they're pretentious people. You know what I mean? Oh, so I it agree. makes sense that they would act even in like these circumstances. They would act pretentiously. Um, well, because well, Squid and the Whale presents itself almost like a stage play the entire time, and everyone kind of. is, is hyper pretentious. Like, right, you know, Jesse Eisenberg and everyone, even dealing with like the the from a position of the child experiencing the divorce um, or a separation is you know has that. 
well, that I ostentatiousness. Love that, but I love that comment because, like, Jesse Eisenberg in that movie is not, like, a child. He's a child, but he's not... He doesn't act like a child. He doesn't want to be a child. He wants to bang Anna Paquin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but what I liked about this... What it felt like to me about this is just, like, that's, that's removed, and, and there's... There's natural kind of ebbs and flows with with Charlie and Nicole about like how they kind of like put on the shield a lot, mm-hmm. um, and, and that kind of gets like peeled back. And it, it's I, I think it's to me I just really responded to the screenplay because typically in these kind of stories you get someone who you can look at as kind of more of the villain in the situation. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, in yeah. This the only villain's Henry. Um, <laughs> this is a fucking up. jerk. Once again, I'm sorry. Give a little well, effort. The one, the Give one a thing, little effort. The one thing I took from this movie is like, wow, never want kids. They're so fucking awful. This divorce would have been so much easier without children. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they like them so much. Like, I kind of wish like this is a situation where like Charlie was just like, now nah, I'm good with that. The mom has more money. I gotta focus on my grant. But the second um, he didn't want to wear the Frankenstein costume, he was like, fuck this. He yeah, just throws like, it out the window and leaves him on the street. Yeah. Um, but I like the fact that, like, both of them, both Nora and Char, not Nora, both Nicole and Charlie have their issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, like Scratch and Hanson has that, that really solid monologue. That's great. I, that's um, my, in Nora's office, yeah. you know, uh, and. Charlie at first kind of seems like a piece of shit, but you kind of see the way he kind of bumbles things, and just you kind of see like how it's more like his upbringing and necessarily like the where he is in life kind of makes him like super insecure, and you kind of understand. Well, so I don't and justify. know if it makes him really insecure. I think one of the things that he doesn't, I, I think that Bombach misses out on. He misses an opportunity to kind of double down on the idea that like where Charlie's from is very important to him in a different way that it's important to. Nicole, you know what I mean? Like the idea that he is a self-made human almost, and he yeah, like it's... took himself to New York from Indiana, and he like turned himself into this. And Being more, and from more the York... idea of like, like al- the the alcoholism is really downplayed. Like the fact that he kind of focuses in on that. With Nicole, right? Just because it's self-made, not necessarily just being from New York, but just being able to kind of get out of this world, which you realize no, is just awful. It's the idea that like. Because he he hammers home this idea. Charlie hammers home. He's like, oh, we're a New York family. We're a New York family. I just assumed you'd come back to New York, blah, 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 blah. He's supposed to justifiably... Nicole has a justifiable complaint that he has not met any of her emotional needs, like, whatsoever. You know what I mean? But there's something to be said, which is never said in this movie, that he he can't leave New York. New York is where he became Charlie. You know what I mean? Mm. He was something else, and then he went to New York, and he did this, and he married Nicole, and blah, blah, blah. And now he's him. He's a whole... He perceives himself to be whole only in New York. In L.A., he's just all over the place. You know what I mean? He's just a mess. He's got nothing on the walls. Um... You know, he can't pick a good place to go trick-or-treating. He can't get the fucking car seat in. Well, they talk about self-sufficiency. Like, like she makes that reference of he's self-sufficient. You know, he knows how to yeah. um, harn, yarn a fix a sock or but whatever. But that's which, a darn a sock, yeah. Darn a sock, which, which I love that they explained it at the end because I was like, what the fuck does darn a sock but that's what. But he's not self-sufficient. He, he is in New he York, is but not right, exactly. in L.A. He is, but that self-sufficiency, and I don't want, to, I don't want to, to make it seem like I'm coming down on... 
Nicole because I think everything she says is perfectly justified and perfectly no, art- the, and perfectly articulated. The only, I think there's the a only missing... piece of shit besides the attorneys in this movie is, is Henry. We've established that. I fucking hate that kid in this movie. I think he's a piece of garbage. Yeah, it just it's hard. I don't think I don't know if I'm supposed to, I don't think I'm supposed to feel that way. I think they should have given him more to do. I don't feel I don't see there's nothing redeeming about Char about Henry. I don't think I don't, a, here's what, the thing. What, what, what I don't is, think there's supposed to be anything redeeming made, about him. I think there's they should have given him more to do in terms of they should have given him more emotional his performance should have been more emotionally impactful to his parents. I think because he's really just kind of a cipher. He's just like a dumping ground for their love instead of giving him like an actual voice in terms of like I want I want X, I want Z. I know Noah Baumbach's like said on record that he didn't want to make um another movie about divorce through the child's perspective, but it would have been nice to have his perspective a little bit instead of just like can I play with my toys? I'm 8 years old and I don't know how to read. I don't want to go for a second trick-or-treating. Like, he's emotion. I have a nine-year-old, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm interrupting you. I have a fucking nine-year-old. They are more emotionally present and intelligent than this kid. She she was at eight than this kid was. You know what I mean? And that's that's maybe, like, my biggest problem about this film. And I I love this movie, but I think my biggest problem is is it kind of centers around the the issue being Henry. And I... Don't feel it's Henry, not. I don't, but I know, I know. But yes, they're, yes, saying, yes, continue. they're yes. saying like they're obviously saying like you. if it's not Henry, it's gonna be something else. Yeah, right. But Henry doesn't add enough value to either of their lives for me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I just. I do. As, as, as no, somebody I who doesn't. Fair. As somebody it's who fair. doesn't care about kids, like I don't give a fuck about. If I had a kid accidentally, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't care about that kid because I just don't like them. So I need to see – I see the value that the theater gave them. I see the value that other things in their life gave them. I don't see the value that Henry gave them yep. except as a cipher of how they see each other. And this is a problem – it's like he doesn't – he doesn't really matter. And this is a problem culturally. And I think that Noah Baumbach doesn't – he's supposed Children to Children existing? I agree. He's, he's supposed to be more clever than just kind of resting on the cultural idea that like we love our, we love our kids or that you know the kids are the most important thing. If you, ha- if you have a kid – it is essentially like the keeping your kid alive and healthy and well-rounded is the most important thing because you're a grown-up. You should have been taking care of that already. I think the thing that this movie misses, and again, I get, I liked this movie. I liked it. It was good. It was a good movie. I love this movie mean? outside of outside of honestly outside of Henry. It was a, it was which not, is the central feature. I, I don't want it. people to think that I think it's a bad movie. And actually, I don't really give a fuck what people think. But I don't. I, I didn't think it was a bad movie. I thought it was a fine movie. I actually thought it was his best movie since Squid and the Whale. It's it's um, the first like Netflix produced major feature mm-hmm. that feels like an actual film. Too. Yeah, um, it feels like oh this could have come out in theaters and I would not. Like, there doesn't there isn't that that kind of fat that's been added into all mm-hmm. these other Netflix movies we've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These kind of like acclaimed he, directors. He could have dragged a a lot more emotion specific emotional residence out of Charlie's quest for his Charlie's desire to maintain his own identity out of Adam Driver's excellent 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 performance i mean he really goes to that next place Scarlett Johansson gives an equally good but different performance that he does he and maybe Noah Baumbach just has allowed him to get that to that next level through his care. Maybe by not giving him so much 
they're very the cute. same emotional depth that Scarlett Johansson gets. He has to he's covering that up, and it's so when it explodes cu- out of him, yeah. it's different. It's a very curated performance, I thought, almost. To Who's agree. Uh, Adam Driver's? In the sense of it feels like it's it's very deliberate, and that's that's a positive. Like it feels yeah. like there's there's a, a a concentration to it. Like like he kind of says you're kind of reaching for emotion there. Like he makes that criticism to um, Nicole early on in the film. They kind of get a sense of like Adam Driver, the actor, is definitely considering his emotions in each scene. I think that works because mm-hmm. like if he's able to hide it well enough that you don't see that. But that it, it leads to that explosiveness and that like kind of vulnerability he's he's never really letting himself have. Yeah. Um, and you know, like like we said, Scarlett Johansson's great. Laura Dern is is pretty amazing in this. Ray Liotta fucking sucks. But he's great. Oh, I, I know you. Just, I know you hate Ray Liotta. Doing he, any? He's like he's not even playing like a slimy dick lawyer. Well, but that's awesome. Like Alan Alda, who I usually don't like, is doing like this washed up idiot really incredibly well like the handshaking if i was representing you well he's got parkinson's um but i thought that i thought the i just think the ray liotta seemed like he was being ray liotta and he was like i don't have time for this shit and like unless you're willing to pay my fee like but it was actually thought he was a great sparring partner for um laura dern in the trial scene you know what i mean like i agree he's his sliminess is so because she, his sliminess is just slimy. You know what I mean? She has an ethos attached to her methods, mm-hmm. um, which gives her this kind of foundation of, um, of empowerment. So anything that she's saying about Charlie is not so much to, to denigrate him as to continually prop up her, prop Nicole up. Um, but I'll say. Must got Wallace Shawn. But that part sucks. I don't yeah, know why he like. I don't know why he needed to bother him like at that moment. It's not funny. It's nothing. It's just let him fucking have this conversation. It's just like get Wallace Shawn the fuck out of there. Like the, the stuff earlier with Wallace Shawn's fine, but when he's having that phone conversation, it doesn't need to be there. Yeah. When he's talking earlier, like like the other two, like the bar scene and the scene where they first meet, and he says mm-hmm. like fuck. Like later on, he said like fuck everything, men, women. That that's fine. But like. It, yeah, but you, you know don't. I, I think I think the early the, the one interruption of him like also trying to do mm-hmm. theater work at the same time is is great. But then mm-hmm. when Wallace Shawn pops up, it's like, oh, fucking you know why that fuck everything much. is a bad scene because Alan Arkin already did that, and he won a, a fucking Oscar for it for saying that exactly in Little Miss Sunshine. You know what I mean? So like, just having old people say the same thing that old people have been saying in movies now for like fifteen years is not fun. Blabs of it's during a dinner with with somebody like Andre. What if? Um, but no, I, I enjoyed this. I, I do feel. I, mean, I it's enjoyed funny. it. It's funny. It's funny. There's some really funny moments too, which I like. Like the entire evaluator sequence with uh, Martha Kelly. It's fantastic. Like she's just the the amount of like timing she has in those scenes is great. When he cuts um, his arm, that's a classic fucking scene. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Are you all right? Like the blood dripping Fine. on the wall. Fine. Um, I don't particularly care for its ending. Like it's kind of on the, it's really on the nose with now seeing him out of the photographs. Like that's fine. But then when he's the ghost and everyone else is a beetle, like he's a ghost in this new family. It's like, Oh, no, I'm back. I get it. No, I wasn't sure if it was a, if it was a ghost story reference. That would have been great. Just pulls it back and just David, it's David Lowry. <laughs> and David Lowry takes over the second half of this film. Curly handlebar mustache. Yeah. 
but yeah, there, there's there's definitely like imperfection. I just, I think it's just it's really magnetically carried by like driver performance and yeah. Johansson and um, Dern and and Julie Haggerty, of course. Um, yeah, but yeah, Henry's Henry's a piece of shit. I don't think there's gonna be many marriage story reviews that talk about like, man, this movie. I think this movie. I mean, you don't get the coastal thing, but I would have preferred if this movie was about the control of, like, the theater company or something to that extent because they actually give a shit about that. They care more about that theater company than they do about the kid because the kid's fucking garbage. That is a garbage kid. That kid can barely read. He doesn't even know. I don't even know if he's actually good at math. He's a good dribbler. Great. Yeah. Great. What What is that kid even doing? I don't know. Seriously. Give me something to make that, like, okay, that kid's worthwhile. He's nothing. He's not even a vessel for, like, being better for them. He's just a piece of shit. He doesn't even know how to wash his hands. You know what's so funny? It would be a really... forgets to flush the toilet. It would be really... I'm going to be honest with you. That happens all the time. That's not, not like, a novel thing. I watched um, Blue Valentine at 1 o'clock in the morning in preparation for watching Marriage Story because I wanted to be able to compare them. Um, I don't know. I'm just a Ryan Gosling, Michelle Williams person. That movie is fucking devastating. This movie, eh. I, you know this what is, I mean? It's like the emotional devastation that everyone keeps talking about is, is not it, present no, in this movie. No, this is, it's light. Even like, when he says, like, I want, I wish you were dead. Like, his, um, his, cause I can see the performance is, is, is amazing, but it doesn't, I don't actually think he wishes she was dead. No, cause it's instant. It's just, it's, it's all in the moment of anger. And Michelle like, they, you never Williams, get the sense that they hate each other. You get a sense they're mad temporarily, yeah. but they're going to be best friends. And even kind of ends in this weird twinge of like, oh, there could be something in the future. You never know. Yeah. Sort of thing. Um, Michelle Williams actually embodies the idea that like, I wish I was dead. Like it's, it's like radiating out of her, yeah. out of her. Out of her existence in Blue Valentine, like, holy I'm shit. I'm pretty sure Blue Valentine's rated NC-17 just before emotional un- I think it is. I think it is. It's not even, like, for the sex stuff. Because the sex stuff's not even that graphic. It's just because, like, oh, my God. A child would fucking kill everything if they well, saw that's, this. But that's what I'm saying is that, like, the relationship between, because of that stuff, because of, like, the performances and whatever about Blue Valentine, um, you don't feel anything but sad for that kid. You know what I mean? That's your first emotion. Like, this kid's life is going to stink awesome. forever. How is she nominated for an Emmy in Halloween? What? The Who? Emmys are before Halloween. Like, way before Halloween. They're in September. Who? Nicole in the end. Let's thought about that. Never mind, go ahead. Oh. Uh, There's a couple other errors in this movie. Yeah, wouldn't that be me. after? Yeah, she would have already I got nominated. Life. Yeah, it would have it would have happened. Also, already. early on, when they're playing Monopoly... Fucking that that dumb fucking prick kid Henry has a hotel that Adm- that Charlie lands on. It's like oh, I'm bankrupt. Ready? There's no other houses on any of the other properties. Gotta get you that have right. to build evenly. You gotta get that right. I don't know if this. Maybe this is a criticism that that isn't warranted. No, no, it's, fucking, it is. Coming what? from a board game family, it's totally fucking warranted. Yeah, like. Because later on they're like playing, they're playing Monopoly, and the houses is actually are actually correct. Like there's three, three, two, and I'm like, you know the rules, Bombeck. Why well, just don't know if you can, if you, you can't just build up a hotel. If and you not can't have read, houses. you can't play Monopoly. Yeah, that fucking that kid. Like honestly, this movie been so much better. Charlie's like, yeah, have them. I want the theater company, and like that just been the end. And then it cuts to like five years later, and Nicole's a miserable shell of a human being. Because Henry has destroyed him. 
I'll say though, so one of the things I didn't say it and I wanted to say it was that before the Nicole monologue, I actively hated this movie. I thought the first 20 minutes were a fucking dumpster fire because it didn't seem like it knew what it wanted to be or who these characters were or what it was trying to do. Yeah, it takes a while to find it's like... It's until she meets Nora, which is maybe a real thing. And that's... No, Bombaka would might deserve some credit for kind of having this really loose, like shitty movie going on until Nicole gets a framework for how she should be feeling. Um, I think to that end, that's why my feelings about it are very just kind of like neutral. Like it's well-made. It's very well acted. It's pretty well written. Um, and no criticism to, to Ozzy Robertson's performance as Henry, by the way. I just his characters. I don't mean. I don't think he's very good. No, I don't think he's good either. I just, I'm not going to criticize a maybe ten year old kid. I don't know how old he is. I'm not going to look it up because I hate that character. <laughs> he's the kid that's listened to our Oscar podcast four hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> now we've crushed him. Good. Take that. All right. I will say this though. Yeah. Um. Randy Newman's score is better than than Robert Richardson's score. Or Robbie Robertson? Robbie Robertson's score. Oh, I mean, I don't like this score, but yeah. I mean, the score of the movie we're going to talk about right after this, which is almost non-existent, is better than the Robbie Robertson score. Irishman sucked. I'm... As I forget away from further, oh my god! I just like Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, and that's, that's it. You know, it's it's weird that we spent so much you more than me spent so much time on that movie, and I don't care about it at all. I just hate it now. I just hate it. I just don't get it. I don't. And I, yeah, it's I, all De Niro. It's all fucking. De Niro. I'm gonna be honest. And I'm glad. I'm glad that it feels like the tides are turning, where it's just like De Niro's kind of getting pushed to the side. Well, so I've heard, I on the way over here. I was listening to a podcast about the Golden Globes, and they were saying that like. Maybe ten years ago, nine years ago, Robert De Niro on the stage of the Golden Globes like shit on the Hollywood Foreign Press. So now they're like, no thanks. So they think that's why they kept him out. I mean, if if he doesn't get nominated, if like they just you know don't nominate him, I'd be fine with Irishman winning whatever. Just just so it just says in the end that even if Irishman wins Best Picture, as long as it's just because like by the way, not because of fucking you. Yeah. In spite of you, De Niro, this one. It's gonna Fuck be, you, De Niro. It's going to be a fun Oscar. Join Lawrence Kasdan in the corner. <laughs> hey, Bobby. Hey. Oh, God. They're it's gonna... pretty lonely here. We should, we should remake Accidental Taurus like 20 years later. Um, all right. So we will be right back with our number 37s. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm going first again today because this is another movie that ends up on Mario's list in like forever. Um, it's a movie that ends up on my list here for some very specific reasons. Uh, I'm not going to do a long preamble for it. I'll kind of talk about it afterwards. My number 37 is the Coen Brothers 2007 movie, uh, No Country for Old Men. Let me ask you something. What's the most you ever lost? Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. Just call it Friendo.
horse in the satchel. It's full of money. He's just a guy who happened to find that money. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. I don't love that woman. That's one of the reasons it's I have I have problems with it. This is one of the reasons it's a complicated movie for me, but it's actually one of the reasons why it's number 37. Um, I went to see this movie, obviously, like everybody else, um, preparing for something really significant. Did you read the book before you saw the movie? Mm-hmm. You're a Cormac McCarthy Probably, guy, yeah. yeah. Um, I did too. Um, I was kind of... Um, I will say this movie is the thing that got me into McCarthy. Or I read it mm-hmm. in a year before in preparation. So I had read Blood Meridian before because of Harold Bloom. R.I.P. Um, who's a big McCarthy, Blood Meridian guy. Um, this is the first one I read in real time. Like, bought the book, the hardcover, when it came out with, you know, the red cover and, like, the shadow guy staggering around in it. Um, I thought it was one of, like, the great film adaptations of all time. I thought it was one of the great film-going experiences I've ever had. The tension in the theater was fucking crazy. Really crazy. Quick. Did I ever tell you how I actually saw this movie? No. Uh, I had not slept in 24 hours. Oh. <laughs> so you were ready? Uh, yeah, not because I was excited for it. I just was reading. I think I, I the night. I forgot what I read the night before, but I hadn't slept. I just read all the way night yeah. through. That's what I, I used, used to, to do, do at that, that, that time. In college. Um, well, how old? So you were like what? 20, 21? I was 21 at um, this point. M- Mario, when I was twenty-one, I never slept either. All yeah. I did was read and watch movies. That's all yeah, I fucking that, that's did. That's I did. And go to the diner and eat grilled cheeses. And I saw No Country for Old Men, and I left. It was like that. You know, like my opinion, obviously. And then I just fucking crashed for fourteen hours. Yeah, um, I'm sure Josh Brolin did the same thing. Um, yeah, I when I got out you of the movie, do milk. <laughs> milk is good. He's good at milk. Um, I thought it was I thought it was amazing when I saw it, and I still think it's amazing. It still kind of blows my mind every time I every time I watch it. I think it's um, weirdly perfect. Um, I don't know. Should we Should we go into it? I mean, I mean, I I'm not. There was a drug deal gone wrong. Uh, Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin, stumbles upon it in the in the desert. Um, he is, he finds some money, finds $2 million at a satchel. Uh, he is hunted satchel. for that money by Anton Jagger, played by the Oscar winner for this film, Javier Bardem. Could have been Mark Strong. Which would have been bad. <laughs> Mario. <laughs> that, would, that would have been no good. I don't think that Oscar's coming Mark Strong's way if he's playing that. Um, around the outskirts of this movie is... Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Almost played by Mark Strong. <laughs> he was going to do both. <laughs> you know what's? I think my favorite story about this movie is that um, Garrett Dillahunt auditioned to play Llewellyn Moss. And like thinking about Garrett Dillahunt as Llewellyn Moss makes me laugh. <laughs> because it's just, it's just like a bad... I wonder what the Coens were thinking when they like saw whatever that audition tape or like what that audition was like was like were they just kind of laughing inside like no nah, this isn't gonna work um there's carson wells 
Oh, I didn't talk about Ed Tom Bell. Ed Tom Bell is a sheriff of the town where uh, Llewellyn lives. And he also, you know, his jurisdiction is this desert plain there or the desert basin where all these trucks and these dead dogs and dead Mexicans and dead everything else are found. Um, He's been on the force for a long time. Uh, there's also Carson Wells, played by Woody Heller- Harrelson, who is a a Anton Chigurh hunter. He's a Mark, bounty hunter. Mark Strong passed on that role. He did. He didn't. He didn't want to wear the hat. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's there's other people. Kelly McDonald is Carla Jean, uh, Llewellyn's Llewellyn's uh, wife, Kara Dillahunt as as deputy Wendell, uh, who we heard in the opening uh, of the episode. Um. You know, this movie won a million, like a bunch of Oscars: best picture, best director, best supporting actor, and best adapted screenplay. That's all the Oscars that won, though. I think it only won those four. And they it, won a bunch. Well, four. I mean, that's a good four. It won a bunch, especially like when there's actually not that many Oscars. There will be blood. Yeah, which all, I mean, which didn't split stuff, but like it got cinematographer and it got uh, you know best actor. Um, you got uh, my favorite thing about this movie is like the music by Carter Burwell. I just I think it's so funny. A couple of strings plucked yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, he did the same thing with um, Three Billboards. Like the like yeah yeah, it's like yeah the same score. I mean, there's a there's films. a little more stuff going on in Three Billboards. Um, and I don't want to talk about Three Billboards because I'll get on a tangent because I think Three Billboards is a great movie and everyone fucking hates it so well, i love three billboards i just it felt like three three billboards score was like he like carter burwell finally finished the no country for old or score. he just like <laughs> well so actually mario that's a really perfect you didn't know you were going to give me the perfect segue for, <laughs> okay for this but you did um what i think about now i love this movie it's my 37 it fucking kicks my ass what i think about now when i think about this movie is Prince. Do you know why I think about Prince? The the musician? Yeah. The dead one? Yeah. The Minnesota guy? Yeah. Here's why I think about Prince. Mario. I don't have anything else to talk about. Prince. Here's the. <laughs> that's just the, those <laughs> the, the two things. things. Can remember us? Black Sunday? Rains? Purple Rain? Purple Rain. Purple Black Rain. Sunday. Perfect. Oh no, this is. Uh, I don't remember what album When Doves Cry is on because I hate Prince. Famously, Prince recorded When Doves Cry. With a whole bunch of instrumentation. And then he went in and he he listened to it and he he took out the bass. He just took it out. There was bass. It's from from Purple Rain. Oh, okay. It is from Purple Rain. Very good. Um, I fucking. You know, all of my former record store employee friends that I know that always were apparently all over there. Who yell at me all the time about like I don't I don't like Prince. I'm sorry, Armand White. I'm sorry, NRM employees. I I just don't like it. Um, he took out he took out the bass, so you get this song which has no bottom end. It's all just high and Prince's voice and um with this you know this beat that just kind of goes and goes and goes, but it doesn't have any bass in anything. Isn't there like a synth in there? Yeah, it's all. I mean, it's it's, it's the 80s, like so there's synth. No, 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 because blink, 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 blink. Listen to it again. I always assume that's just like the, the replacement for the bass. Listen to I don't know music, man. So he took out the bass. How I relate it to this 
Mario, is that the Coen brothers went into this movie. I get the impression that the Coen brothers went into this movie thinking they were making a different movie. And then as the movie, as they were filming it, and actually it's funny because reading that Coen brothers book, which I had to return to the library, reading Roger Deakins kind of talking about um, No Country for Old Men, he actually, it's the one movie he feels like the worst about in the Coen brothers like canon that he feels like he left a lot on the table on No Country for Old Men. Like some of the, he had to make a lot of compromises that he didn't really necessarily want to make in terms of continuity, in terms of lighting, in terms of shot composition. Like there were just things they had to do. Like when Llewellyn Moss is running away from the truck, kind of in, you know, as the, as the sun is coming up and stuff like that. Apparently that took forever to do, and they just kind of had to do it well, eventually. You ever, hear, you ever hear? I don't. I don't know if this is an urban legend. Uh, I, I've read this a few times that they actually had to stop production one point on this film because the smoke from the there will be blood set from the fire. That's actually. Awesome. I mean, <laughs> like, that makes perfect sense. Ruin the, ruin the shot. That makes that makes sense for my list and for also <laughs> for this movie. But then I also think they ran. Elswit just sabotaging him. Elswit, <laughs> fuck that guy. <laughs> Look at this. Look what I'm going to do here. Um. And then they got a they got a Javier Bardem performance that I don't think they they thought they were gonna get, and better than that, which I think was the real best supporting actor of that year, they got a one of the great great all time old man performances in Tommy Lee Jones as Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, next to Space Cowboys. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I think James Garner's performance as Space Cowboys <laughs> is better than that. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't think they were going to get it. Why do I think that they weren't going to get it? Because they kept trying to Cohen, they kept trying to like Jerry rig Cohen Brothers shit into it. You know what I mean? Like, like the woman that we we heard in the thing, like you know he ain't you know whatever she says. That's sitting at the desk of the trailer park where Llewellyn lives. Um, she just looks like a Cohen Brothers character. You know what I mean? And she says Cohen Brothers things. She has a Cohen Brothers attitude. And she, and the guy with the coin toss, you know what I mean? And that runs the gas station. He just looks like a Coen Brothers guy. And he talks like a Coen Brothers guy. You know what I mean? Like, and we're going to talk about this later. And with, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. He just looks like a Coen Brothers guy. They, they keep trying to, like, Stephen Root's hair. You know what I mean? Like, why does Stephen Root's hair look like that? It's not a period thing. No one gives a shit. It's because of Coen Brothers. They keep trying to like, they kept trying to insert their own shit into this movie. Even like the framing of Llewellyn Moss and Carla Jean sitting together on the couch there, um, when he's like, "Oh, I may have to take you, I may have to take you in the back and, and whatever, fuck you." Is that what he says? Or screw you? May have to. All that stuff is like perfect Coen Brothers. You know what I mean? It's it aligns perfectly with their aesthetic. But the movie keeps going beyond their stupid aesthetic. You know what I mean? Their kind of like goofiness and their kind of off-kilterness. Like, it doesn't want to settle for being merely a Coen Brothers movie. The movie is alive and wants to be something else. It's one of the reasons why this movie is not going to be on my big list. On my top 20 of the... of, of the, well, the 20 last 20 years. years 
Spoilers. That's Spoilers. Coming. Yeah. Um, because I don't... I think ultimately they didn't really have a grasp on this movie. It just kind of became something else. And I find it like utterly thrilling to think about that. You know what I mean? Like the idea that there's no music. I, 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 there's probably tons of music. They probably left all the music on the cutting room floor because like as these scenes were happening, they're like, this scene just works better if there's no music. You know what I mean? Like we don't need music here. Llewellyn Moss running away from Anton Chigurh through that darkened town, hiding behind trucks and looking at people and reflections. I mean, Carter Burrell just wasn't probably like, I don't have anything done yet. Like, fine, doesn't matter. Um, I mean, we could do a whole like hour and a half on reflections in and No Country for Old Men. If I mean, there's a potential. To. Like, we we got weeks in front of us that we, we that may. might happen. Um, But one of the so it's I don't it's an imperfect movie because of that for me, while being totally like a, a totally thrilling movie. It's like a thunderstorm of film in my mind, where I just I love it. I just fucking love it. But it also feels it just feels weird. It feels like out of control. Which is awesome. But I don't know. I just don't know about it anymore. I, like, having seen it, it's another one of those movies that I go to all the time because it's so eminently watchable. Um, you know, you can just... I don't have cable, but what they say on stuff is like, oh, if you are flipping channels and you come across it, you would watch it. You know what I mean? But it's just one of those movies that when it was on Netflix for a while, I just I watched it like five or six times Not because it was time. just... It was free and it was there. I mean, not free. I was paying, you know, whatever, $12 a month for it, but... Paying less than you would rent it on exactly. YouTube. Um, so I just watched it because it's just amazing. Um, and it's one of those movies you can watch, like, a bit of and stop and just be and happy about that. good, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know what you want to say about it. I don't know what you have to say about it. You can respond to what I said. You could say anything you want because, again, we're going to talk about this later. Um but I'll, I'll I'll open the floor now to, to like whatever to you feel compelled to say. Um. So what do you like like in terms of that? What do you, what do you think is the is the driving thing that kind of like pulls that back? Um. In other words, like is it the Javier Bardem performance or is it like the pulls it back Tommy to what Lee Jones performance where like the Coen Brothers realized from your view that they didn't need to invade that film with kind of like their quote-unquote sensibility well i think i think it's both of those performances because i think josh brolin is doing his level best to be in a coen brothers movie woody harrelson as well and woody harrelson yeah woody harrelson too um they're in and um kelly mcdonald they're all really they understood the coen brothers kind of ideas i think kelly mcdonald's doing more of a, a she's doing a less, kind of caricature of but it's also the coen brothers like caricatures like southern characters she's scottish and so she's really leaning into the like llewellyn where'd you get that satchel you know what i mean yeah. it's really very coen brothersy but you got these two guys i think and that's the thing it's a perfect adaptation you know what i mean like tommy lee jones is playing what is written on cormac mccarthy's pages you know what i mean and because there's no there's no exposition between the lines of dialogue in Cormac McCarthy books. You know what I mean? He's not like 
analyzing how they're thinking. They're just delivering lines. They're just delivering lines in this movie. It's perfect. You know what I mean? And most of this movie is taken directly from the book. But the way he delivers it is so intense and so lost and so powerful that it, it, that silliness that they keep trying to like insert in it seems stupid. Like it seems dumb. Like the coin toss scene, it almost seems like Javier Bardem and that guy are doing two different scenes. Well, you know feels, what I mean? Like they don't understand what each other is doing. Well, I would say that Chigar's, you know, the, the Bardem Chigar performance is is enhancing and and kind of building upon the fatalism of McCarthy's Chigar. Yeah, McCarthy's yeah, yeah. Chigar is like fatalistic and has those still like those weird naturally bound principles he has, but he's not that force of nature. No, 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 he's a more of a person. Yeah. Whereas he is absolutely just a wisp in the wind sort of thing in um, Bardem's performance. And yep. you do get that kind of different level, but he's this more actual personification of, of fatalism and of, um, you know, like not, not necessarily nihilism. I don't want to say nihilism because there's this circularity to nihilism, but just to this pointlessness of it all. This, But this... I think they thought with the hair and with the, in the, with the pallor and with, like some of the lines of some of the interactions that he was going to have with people that it would be darkly comic comic, but it's but fucking not instead. What you get is, is a, a man who's just indifferent to those sort of things. He's dressed that way. He has that sort of hair cause he doesn't care. It just seems like he lives on a different plane of existence yeah. and it's fucking terrifying. But it, in the book, it's he's a man who's coming to kill somebody. And this, like you said, it's, he's it's definitely he's, a job. He's an he, idea. Yeah. He's he's definitely like like has those certain qualities in the book, but he's not this otherworldly thing. He isn't this, you know, and, and that kind of helps like with the shot where he kind of like hit, breaks his arm. It still feels like maybe they even really break his arm, sort of thing. It's just more like a just oh, this is still a man, but is it even still a man? Shouldn't he have died? Like the the level of the car crash kind of lends itself to like why'd he just leave with a well the kid is, arm. the kid is like mr your bone like t- twice but again i i mean i can't even imagine what it was like for those kids to act with <laughs> javier bardem in that scenario but he's just on a different he's One on a those different kids was level actually derek c in france and he would go on to write blue valentine because of that experience is that in- true that's not true, is it? <laughs> yeah, like two and a, like three years later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally wanted to believe you. I was like, "That fucked that kid up. <laughs> that kid is fucked up." Um, but yeah, I think there were, one of the reasons it's not a little bit higher on my list is that I I have a lot of conflict about it. I guess that's why I wanted to like what 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 keeps it that much more. Further down, because it's one of like the, this would show up on most people's like top list of the sure. past twenty years. But I think I, it's because of that. The Coen Brothers, the Coen Brothers, the this is the this is the ten ten point five. Yeah, it's coming out. Um, the Coen Brothers have a thing; they do a thing. You know what I mean? Their movies look like something. They sound like something. They are something. This movie on the surface is a Coen Brothers movie. But then, very, 
What's obviously, it becomes it becomes it very quickly becomes not a Coen Brothers. I would, movie. I would argue that from its first moment, it doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers movie though, and like that's because of your introduction to Chagar. Yeah, and just the way Bardem's doing it, so it doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers movie, and that kind of see, but I think falls back into being one. It doesn't, and we're going to talk about this later. Oh, we're one hundred percent either doing we're one hundred percent doing a totally separate episode for No Country for Old Men. This is the literally the perfect sequel to Fargo. I think we've had this conversation, yes. right? It's the perfect sequel to Fargo in the sense that, like, where Marge thinks she's kind of like put a tourniquet on like this evil that's kind of creeping through everything. It this movie proves that she one hundred percent didn't. She put it on the wrong leg. <laughs> she, she she put it on the toe and like it, it, well, that was working fine. And they had they had cut it off and that person's really bitter now that they had to lose a toe that they didn't, shouldn't have lost in the first place. Um, put a tourniquet on a toe that was already a part of a detached leg. He's <laughs> like, this is this is gonna work. This is gonna make everything better. Um, and I think the opening the opening aligns to that idea. In a couple of things, in that sheriff that that gets him, like his conversation on the phone, the way they kind of shoot his face, you know what I mean? When he's laying on the ground, it's a little ridiculous. You know what I mean? Strangling when he's strangling him, and his nostrils um, are totally flared, and you know, um, there's a thing. I don't find that ridiculous, though. I find that that terrifying. But it's just like this. Like we don't know it's terrifying at the beginning, though. Because I did. So I I did. That's the thing. I did. I was just. I thought it looked weird. And I think they played up the weirdness because what's really affecting in that scene is not his face and it's not the blood that spurts out of the guy. It's the fucking boot marks. Mm. That's the really affecting thing in that scene. And I'm not sure. It just is, you have this conversation all the times with musicians that um, you say, like, if you, if you ask a musician, like, what their favorite record that they've made is, they always say, like, their most recent record. And when they play concerts, they play, like, all their new stuff. And they don't really seem to know what people like. They know what they like. And they don't really seem to know what, like, people understand about who they are as musicians. Um, Except for Chumbawamba. <laughs> Where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> this title, Except for Chumbawamba. Um, I think... It's very clear in the beginning that there's there's conflict here. There's filmic. Filmic is that a word? I wasn't gonna say it, but I don't think so. <laughs> you know what? Sure. Yeah, get your... the purpose of this podcast. Larry and Bobby, get the uh, Scrabble dictionary out and look <laughs> at filmic plays here. If I can get a triple word score out of filmic, um, conflict going on with what they want to do, which. Versus what is actually happening on the screen. And I think that's a failure of filmmaking more than I think it's an inspiration of filmmaking. You know what I mean? Filmic is, is a is a video making app. That's all it is? That's all I'm saying. That's, I, that's, what I, that's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, but we will talk much more about this. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to get heavily into those kind of opinions knowing that it shows up so much higher in my yeah. list. And this is definitely a separate episode. This will be one of those podcast like episodes where I think as we get closer to number one, you know, we're gonna be separating out the episodes. But it's interesting. I just and I just want to tie this to the last couple of things on my list. So when we were really with Silence of the Lambs and with um I forget. Um uh, the four hundred blows and with Boogie Nights, 
we're dealing with certain for me a confrontation with perfection a little bit you know what i mean where each of these movies seemed each of those movies seemed to explain something very specific about about film to me they seem to define something very specific and in the moment this also seemed to but the more that i i considered it it actually seems to be the opposite it seems to be more representative of um, a kind of live art more than it is of a f- of film art. Well, that's that's an interesting point, kind of like that perfection versus imperfection argument. Um, I really kind of put like you kind of say this is a sequel to Fargo, and for me, I put No Country and Science of the Lambs kind of on the same level of kind mm-hmm. of feeling like narratively not narratively similar, but but in terms thematically and maybe uh, the the audience emotion that it evokes is, is feels very similar from the, the emotions that it evokes in you are similar. Um, and you know, spoilers, I feel has no silence kind of is a more perfect film in terms of evoking those emotions. And it's, it, and you I even so said too. that in your review, that that's a more perfect kind of film. So what puts this like, well, so I'm, that's I'm the flipped. Thing. I'm flipped. Like no country, no country will show up more we will talk about No Country before we talk about Science of the Lambs on there, my list. Because of that, Science of the Lambs is, um, has a lot of classical film elements going on for it. Even though Jonathan Demme betrayed... Somebody right now is filling out the, their list, guess. Yeah. Even though Jonathan Demme... Science of the Lambs is going to be further up. Oh, God. Fuck. No Country's I that thought far. I had this no nailed. Country's, was he even in the top ten? Um... There's I know Spring of, 3 is number one, but... There's a lot of classicist things going on in Silence of the Lambs. You know what I mean? Besides... Uh, classical or classist? Gl- gl- classicist. Where he's... Jonathan Debbie betrays a lot of that stuff with like some of his, um, you know, his close-ups, with his point-of-view shots, with a lot of that stuff. But ultimately, it's a, it's a police... It's a procedural movie. You know what I mean? Um, he's doing classic procedural things. He's doing them... Expertly, he's doing them better than anyone has ever done them before. This movie, because of those performances, because of those, because of the choices that they ultimately had to make to make this movie work on the level that it was working, not on the level that I think they intended to make it work, but on the level that it was working. Um, this movie has a real. This movie has a crazy fucking energy to it. This movie has an energy to it that Silence of the Lambs, like, just doesn't have. So you know what I mean? Like- it's it's just so raw. It's like an open nerve because I think it's not it's not right somehow. You so know what I mean? It's like a really good punk album versus yeah. a you know what Mario really solid Sodheim uh, I would, show. I would. That's a bad analogy because I think Steven Sondheim fucking sucks. I mean, I'm just using it for the sake of. I what, guess that makes me a bad person. I I'm, I'm using totally, it for the sake of what what yeah. most people would. You look know what at it is it. though? It's it's like a great. It's. Great Andre Bocelli show. It's like a, it's like a show from your favorite band that hits all the right notes, versus a show from a band you've never heard of that hits a lot of weird notes, but also has the moment of like real transcendent newness and beauty, which you didn't go in expecting, and but now you kind of can't get out of your head. It's like me seeing Yolo Tango versus me seeing Muse, to to make a reference that nobody will get besides the two of us. Yes, I mean that's it's or how about this? It's me going to see this old power pop band from the seventies called the Ruba News at Cafe Nine with my dad and like thirty other people and JP. That's, that's packed. 
JP going across town to see the new pornographers at College Street Music Hall with like a thousand people, or several thousand people. And me just being blown away that these 60 year old guys can rock this hard and sing these great harmonies and like all this other stuff. And JP going, there's a lot of keyboards. You know I what mean, I mean? But to be fair, love JP, but I think JP would have seen, seen no, the but same that's, thing in that show. But that's, no, but that's, I actually don't think he would have because this show was really kind of revelatory in the sense that like, holy shit, like I didn't see any of this coming where, you know, you go to see that new pornographer show and you're just like, yeah, this is it. This sounds like the records. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's that, it's that type of thing. It's, it's, and to, to put them, to line them up against, to line this movie up against There Will Be Blood, which it will forever be lined up directly against. And Michael Clayton. Well, I mean, so 2007 is is a fucking baller year for movies. Yeah. I mean, Michael Clayton, Eastern Promises. I mean, it's an amazing year for for great movies. I but I, yeah, it doesn't matter. Atonement. <sighs> Paul Thomas Anderson was fully in control of everything that happened in There Will Be Blood. Literally every second of it seems crafted. Where this goes in and out. You talked about ebbs and flows with Marriage Story before. Like this movie has these weird ebbs and flows where it seems like it's gonna come it's gonna come unhinged sometimes and then like it gets pulled back and then it just seems like it's gonna come apart again and then it gets pulled back. Mostly it gets pulled back when Josh Brolin is is really heavily involved in stuff. But um in talking. When Josh Brolin is talking the movie recedes. Um but we should definitely move on. Because we are at one, <laughs> we are an hour and thirty-seven. We have a movie that we are not going to talk about later. Um, so we will be right back with Mario's thirty-seven. Anticipation and expectation in film is something I have always been a fan of. In the, to quote us many times before, warm blanket moments, mm. you expect and anticipate a film to be a certain way from a filmmaker um, that you've become accustomed to, you know, from since this is the week of Netflix, where you got to talk about the big Netflix movie of the week, six under six underground or whatever, the new Michael Bay flick that's coming out on Friday. Really? Yeah. Wow. Ryan oh, Reynolds. the Ryan Reynolds thing. Yeah. Uh, but from Michael Bay, you'd expect a certain kind of, you know, Terribleness, a <laughs> crumont, as I was gonna say, our <laughs> our, our passive, our um, tableau. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a Michael Bay tableau from these directors um, and writers. I I kind of always expected something, and the film for me at thirty seven. <laughs> this is gonna feel so much like replan. This subverted <laughs> those expectations for me. In the sense that I had came to this movie much later than I'd come to their other films before, and I'd seen a lot of the hallmarks and the trademarks of what they do, um, and their kind of quirks and and writing styles, um, and I went into this expecting the same thing, but it subverted that mm. um, in that it was more of a, in spite of their intentions. This is why I was laughing the entire time you were doing your No Country review. Uh-huh. Despite of their attentions, for me, this film was a little more straightforward just because of two really kind of 
glaring performances, not necessarily good performances. One of them actually pretty flat, but flat in a way that I've always enjoyed this actor to be flat in Gabriel Byrne. Mm -hmm. And another performance, which is just a a person I've always just admired uh, in Albert Finney, um, just kind of subverting the expectations of, of what I'd seen from these directors before. Um, yeah, that, that movie is, is the Cullen Brothers' Miller's Crossing. <laughs> Albert Finney, Gabriel Byrne, Marsha Gay Harden, John Turturro. I can't die! I'm here in the woods! Like a dumb animal! I can't die! He's still alive. You expect me to believe you? No. It's you all over town. Alive and no heart. No one is what they seem to be. Hope is down. Black is white. At Miller's Crossing. I love those early 90s. Oh, well, in the late 80s trailer, right? That sounds like At Miller's Crossing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that carries the gravity and gravitas of this film, doesn't it? Yeah. You just hear John Taturo crying for his life when, you know, you get the person who probably did the voiceover for Has the River Runs Through It saying <laughs> At Miller's Crossing. Hey, the River Runs Through It is great. Tom Reagan is, uh, kind of the uh, close confidant of Leo O'Bannon. Tom Reagan played by Gabriel Byrne. Leo O'Bannon played by Albert Finney. Uh, Leo O'Bannon is one of the the major hand in the Irish mob in a unnamed city during the Prohibition. I yeah. felt like it was the same city from the film Crime Wave, that Sam Raimi movie that the Coen Brothers co-wrote. Mm. You ever see that one? No. Um, I just I was like, this is the same city. It's just like that's that's a weird Coen Brothers. It's probably comedy. like a Chicago, right? I don't think I they feel ever like all of these movies like, are Chicago. It just feels it doesn't like it doesn't feel like Chicago. I guess what's it doesn't funny, feel like anything. Yeah, what's funny is Inside Lewin Davis to me, even though it's New York, feels like Chicago because mm. oh, all the buildings are so short. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Um, Leo's Leo's in charge of the kind of most powerful mob in uh, this this city during Prohibition. Uh, they have control of the mayor and the uh, police force. Um, his big rival, the ever-great <laughs> John Poletto, uh, playing Johnny Casper, head of the Italian mob, comes to him wanting to get the ability to whack Bernie, John Turturro, who's playing a bookie who's kind of playing both sides. He's denied that opportunity against the uh, wishes and guidance of Tom. Um, because of the fact that Leo's been carrying on a affair with Verna, Marsha Gay Harden, the always great Marsha Gay Harden. She is, she is like the one, I mean, Albert Finney is also really great in this. Johnny uh, Pollard is really great. But Marsha Gay Harden, it's nice to see Marsha Gay Harden being like, like this. Because she doesn't get to do this stuff anymore. Yeah, she doesn't get to really chew the scenery. Right. I mean, uh, she doesn't mist, but it's a different kind of Yeah, thing. like that's a, like it's a different kind of scenery chewing. Um, Tom is also carrying an affair with her and reveals this eventually to Leo to kind of convince him of Verna's double crossing. And Leo pushes him aside 
So Tom goes to Casper, who tells him he must kill Bernie in order to get in his good graces. Um, Tom, in a moment of uh, golden-heartedness, uh, spares Bernie's life as he cries out, you know, as you know, he cries out, look in your heart, to Tom. I can't die! Not out here you like an animal <laughs> in the woods! Casper soon becomes the head of that mob, the, 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 the top mob in, in the town. Um, and Tom, you know, kind of starts playing both sides. Also, you know, playing next side, Eddie Dane, who's kind of the Tom to Casper, mm-hmm. uh, was before. Um, eventually, Bernie, who has been told to leave the town, shows back up, having not left, kind of holding that kind of carrot over the head of Tom. Um, Tom then realizes that there's been another body that's been placed there um, because they suspect that, you know, Bernie was not actually murdered. Uh, and eventually Tom realizes that he has to get out of this kind of mess, um, leading to him getting Casper to kill the Dane and Bernie to kill Casper. Tom then able to finally kill Bernie when he's told Bernie asks him to look in his heart again and Tom says what heart and shoots him in the head um Leo and Verna go off to get married and Leo tries to ingratiate himself back in Tom back into his life and Tom washes his hands of him and walks off from Miller's Crossing so as I said um for me, the reason I came to this film long after I had kind of seen a lot of the me filmography yeah. of uh, this is one of the last of the Coen Brothers movies I came back to. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say so. This would be around 2008. I had seen this, so you know, obviously, I hadn't seen Burn After Reading, Serious Man, those films that would yet to come mm-hmm. yet because they just hadn't been released. But um, you know, like I saw this after No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Um, the only, I, I think this is potential. Actually, this is probably the last of all the filmography I'd ever got to. Mm-hmm. I, um, I never, no, that's not true. Intolerable Cruelty. I didn't get to Intolerable Cruelty until like years later. What? Yeah. <laughs> I, oh, I just knew, man. I knew in the cockles of my body that I would not respond well to Intolerable Cruelty. I was right. <laughs> um, but this was the last of the kind of history of the Coen brothers leading into No Country, like No Country for Old Men, uh-huh. um, that I had seen. And like even after like Crime Wave, which they had co-wrote. Um, and to that point, you know, I had ingratiated myself and kind of like I become familiar with these beats, these constant Coen brothers asides, these moments of kind of weird humor. Um, these really larger-than-life characters, these kind of meandering, not meandering shots necessarily, but these kind of like meandering moments. Um, and this film has a lot of those. Meandering yeah. moments? Yeah. A lot it of sure does. A lot of meandering moments and a lot of kind of like weird pockets of humor. Um, you know, like when he's getting beat up in after Polito kind of offers him that deal, mm-hmm. he hits him with the chair. Yeah. Um, and like goes back. Like, whoa, what? Why, Tom? <laughs> you know, 
are just kind of the, the characterizations that, that John Turturro and John Paletta kind of do are kind of 100% those kind of really fantastical, otherworldly characters that mm-hmm. you kind of get in the Coen Brothers film. What struck me, though, watching this is some of these, uh, some of the moments throughout don't at all feel like a Coen Brothers movie. Tom, Gabriel Byrne, apparently got, did not, un, did, just hadn't seen Raising Arizona or Barton Fink or Blood Simple and just hadn't, didn't really understand why Steve Buscemi was talking a mile a minute and just acted this as like most on the face as he could. He it is, seems confused and disinterested. Yes, through exactly. most of the movie. <laughs> but he is playing this so utterly straight and creates this severely discordant noise throughout this movie that makes it as though he is a man who walked out like a a, a famed actor of some sorts from the 1950s who stopped making movies for like 30 years and jumped into a new Hollywood movie Mm -hmm. and didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah, and was trying to be cool. Yeah, it's like a... Like like, 50s cool instead um, of... It's almost as if, um, like, Dennis Hopper had wrote a script, right? Mm -hmm. And was like, who am I going to cast in this? Like, sat down, thought about for a second, like, Yul Brenner. (laughs) He got Yul Brenner to be, like, the feature actor in Easy Easy Writer. Writer. Oh, that would be amazing. Um, How good would that be? That would have been pretty great. <laughs> but that's that's what it feels like. It feels like somebody from this other world of expectations mm-hmm. never really responding to the directors and or the world that's being built around them and just acting in a completely separate film. And, and you know, Marsha Gay Harden at the same point is kind of like chewing the scenery, kind of doing the same thing you'd say like Kelly McDonald's doing, but she's doing it in a different way. She's doing it in a much more controlled way, like in her own way. She's doing it in a way that feels like it's more, not so much a response to the world that's being, the Cohen's world being built around her, but more as to how Marsha Gay Harding read the script and felt Marsha Gay Harding would do the Verna character. Mm. And Albert Finney sees this Cohen brothers world around him sees this kind of like weirdness like there's there's a definite sort of there's a definite there's obviously weird responses to the world around him you get that weird kind of like throne of the dynamite scene or that the you know building explodes the burning body comes flying out the scenes are like weird or even like a tommy gun scene where he's just like walking down the street shooting a tommy gun exactly um like that darkly comic moment where he actually shoots back into his house and the guy shoots his own legs and oh, shoots up his that, own body. That, that's like um, the one shot I really like in this movie because it lasts so long. But Albert Finney is carrying it with such earnestness throughout the entire film while still playing to that tone that the Coen brothers have created. Like still playing almost to its, I don't want to say its lightness, but playing to its sense of... Um, irregularity playing mm. to its uh not, not fantasy but playing to i mean this the, alternate universe sort of well, i guess like the, just the, the general the quirkiness aesthetic yeah. of 
the Coen brothers. I think you said it best it, when it, you it were feels, like... It feels like Dick Tracy. It feels like you're watching kind of like a, a, an allegation of, of a Dick Tracy comic in this. Like well... You're living in quasi-Dick Tracy. Like Warren Beatty qua, like co-directed this movie. Well, Same so year, by the way. Right, yeah. So it's weird... Albert Finney definitely should have been nominated over Al Pacino if they're going to nominate him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird because Al Pacino... So you have the Al Pacino. You have the Albert Finney performance, but then you have the Dane who is playing it straight. You know what I mean? Yeah, J.E. Freeman. He's not doing any weird things. His his lines, I suppose, can be considered funny. Some of the things that he says in reference to what other people are saying can be considered funny. But where Albert Finney's like going to this next level of kind of um, cliched Irish mobster, like the Dane is really just wearing a hat. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's all he's doing is wearing a trench coat and a hat, and that's like the nature of his character is that. Well, you compare him to like, I mean, I, th- I think the Dane is, is best compared to, to like that Mike Starr performance. Mike Starr, you know, would then go on to be like in Huck Sucker Proxy. Frank, the guy who gets hit in the face with the chair. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. Like, and. That's Mike Starr in Dumb and Dumber too, right? Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah, I love Mike Starr. Yeah, he's still alive, right? I, hope so. I don't know. Come on, he's still alive. Good. Yeah, let's bring him back. Bring him let's back. Get him on the podcast. Um, I think with Lawrence Kasdan, Mike Starr, and, and Robert De Niro. That's what's interesting. Like, like, because like John Paletto, Taturo, um, Buscemi, and Starr all like they as they would be later on in films from the Coen brothers are all in tune with the kind of rhythm mm-hmm. of the Coens. You know, they're, they're, they're definitely playing the bass to. Yeah. You know, they've got the bass going. Yeah. They yeah. got the bass going from the, to, the to Prince steal from the Prince reference. Um, like J.E. Freeman doesn't like he's playing it so straight. Gabriel Byrne fucking doesn't even know a songs being played. Yeah. No. Um, and it's, it's this, this coordinates that like drew me in. Because it made me look at this not as just like a film. It, it I don't want to say subverted my expectations because that wasn't wasn't the attempt. But it made me see this just as kind of like a very typical mob noir film, and I still really entertained just because it's you know you get you get um you get a kind of flat very Sonnenfeld um, cinematography. Oh, I fucking hate that cinematography. But the production design of it and some of like the choices of like those it's kind of like. That weird moments of ultra violence, that weird kind of like explosiveness to it, are really engaging. Well, there's two things: is the like you said, the ultra like you know shooting a guy in the top of the head when you're like yeah. under the bed. You always shoot a guy. Oh no, you all you know was it? You always pop a guy in the brain. Like yeah, but when he like shoots him in the head. Yeah. Um, or when Albert Finney shoots the guy in the top of the head, and the head like that's basically what I'm talking. Explodes. I'm, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. The oh. same thing. And then every single room in this movie is fucking huge. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is every room so big? Is this, is that a rhetorical question or do you want me to answer it? I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I just don't, I don't, I don't oh, that's, I've that's, never I understood think, it. I that's an early Cohen's thing too, right? Like Hudsucker Proxy kind of. But Hudsucker Proxy filled it up. Yeah. Like, and Barton, even Barton Fink to an extent, you know, and we're going to talk about, well, Barton Fink, like, we're going to talk about a movie next week that, that the Cohen's clearly love and, used a lot for the Hudsucker proxy and certain aspects of Barton Fink and stuff like that. Oh, right, right, right. Um, I don't... Those make sense because if they're not filled up with stuff, they're filled up with, like, characterizations. In this movie, it's just, like... A giant, it's just empty factory. Three floor. guys or four guys talking in a room. Like, so the very first scene of the movie is just four guys talking in an office... 
but the office is fucking huge. You know what I mean? Or when Gabriel Byrne goes into like the women's bathroom or the women's oh, dressing room, and just it's gigantic. just this, it's like a fucking gymnasium <laughs> of of mirrors and cushions to sit on and stuff like that. It's weird. Well, yeah, and it's these weird kind of like not abstractions, but these weird kind of like. But is that on purpose? Do you think, or like what? What's the? So I suppose here's the same question to you. Like thirty-seven, how do we get here? Because it seems like. I understand it from like a uh, biographical standpoint. You know what I mean? Like you, like the Coen Brothers, people that are checking a lot of Coen Brothers yet to come on your list. Yeah, I have one more Coen Brothers. You have a hundred more Coen Brothers films to go. Um, I mean, as I said, I have three Coen Brothers films in my top right. ten. So this is really related to those movies more so than like. Well, on uh, it's. It's component parts. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's basically, for me, the reason this... I mean, I struggled between this and Barton Fink um, because I responded to them both the same way. Because mm-hmm. Barton... And I, and I think that they really relate to one another in the sense that Barton Fink... Um, so I go to most Coen Brothers movies expecting something, and I left this and Barton... Left Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink with something different. Mm-hmm. Um, Barton Fink, I leave because of just John, like what the fuck John Goodman's doing there. Like John Goodman oh, yeah, yeah. explodes on that screen. Like that movie is not even a Coen Brothers movie. That's just a John Goodman movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, he overwhelms that and takes, takes control of that. And it's still a fucking fantastic film. I, I would like, in terms of, rating like that's why the pivotal film list is not like the best films of all time list i would no, put no. barton fink leagues above miller's crossing the thing about miller's crossing is to me is like i went into that going do i only respond to the cohen so eminently because they're always marking checking off the things i will expect from them okay like it. with them being so far up on my list like constantly mm-hmm. you know like i struggled to like knock things off like huck sucker proxy and whatnot um which I, I still go back and forth i probably should have had tug sucker proxy somewhere on here um you could have put all like 80 percent of the coen brothers movies on this list i'm yeah. sure i just would have been like Tom does his pivotal film list. Mario just talks about the Coen Brothers filmography. But this was the movie I came to where I see the Coen Brothers influence, but the film, like their attempts to create that kind of same narrative is subverted by other forces. And yet I still engaged and still entertained. And that's why I realized like, oh, even when they're not necessarily doing what they set out to do Mm -hmm. um, in in almost like the same similar way of the imperfection, they have no country for old men. Like I'm still really having a fucking time of my life. It still stands as like, like in terms of straightforward, like mob movies, um, it's like, and it's, I guess it's not really necessarily a straightforward mob movie in terms of like mob movies is still one of my favorites. No, but I know this is your period. You like, you're into this period. Oh of, yeah. Like the um, prohibition yeah. era. Um, but I think that's really interesting in that we're basically our lists are basically for the same reason. We, we've gotten to a point in our list where we're confronting movies made by eminent directors, the same director. eminent artists. <laughs> right. Um, where, or maybe the eminent artist, like film artist, not for me necessarily, but I have a, I have one more Coen Brothers movie to go a little bit later. Um, Spoilers, by the way. A Coen Brothers movie is not my number one, for those keeping track. 
Me neither. Um, it is a Roland Emmerich movie. It's the Patriot guys. Is it? I didn't we, tell you about that change. I love that. I love the Patriot. I have, a, I have actually a really bad memory of the Patriot. I'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Oh, good. Um, but I just think it's interesting that we've both decided at this juncture to confront these movies that like stand up as <sighs> directors confronting their own artistic ideals literally on screen. Yes. And I think it's one of the things about film that's different than music and maybe literature is the, the think, same thing. And it's, it takes so long to make well, it. I think, I think less, less so literature, but music can get this, but it's like, I think this episode is more about like confrontation, like the confrontation of dealing with a, a force outside of your own creative purview. But you can just, for a musician, you could just write a bunch of songs and you're just writing them by yourself. You know what I mean? And you could record them on, like, uh, you can make a demo of it, and you could just be like, you know what? That doesn't work. I'll just write some more songs. Or I'll just keep these, and I'll write some more songs, and then I'll go back to these later. Um, you know, I'll kind of, I'll pull from them. There's no such thing as making a movie where you make half a movie. Or you make a whole movie, and you're like, meh, that kind of worked. You know what? I'm going to make a different movie, and then I'm going to make another movie after that, and I'm going to take half of this movie, I'm going to put it in this new movie. You know what I mean? It's a kind of... Unless you're Sam Raimi in Evil Dead 2. <laughs> Is that what he did? Basically. Okay. He like reshot Evil Dead 1 because he didn't have the rights. Um, and I'm sure that's what they did with a lot of Lord of the Rings stuff, too. <laughs> Where Peter <laughs> Jackson just shot some shit and was just like, this works here. Um, but I can't prove that, so don't quote me on that. Um... But I think it's interesting that we're, we, we are getting to this point where even the mistakes, we're responding to the mistakes. Well, these of, movies are so good that we're kind of like, we're, we're responding to their imperfections. Well, that's, that's what I kind of want to finish on this film list. We talked off recording about how you hate this movie. So well, I just, I just like, want to hear so your opinions on it's it. It's for the same exact reason that you're literally – that you're saying I came to this movie after I saw a bunch of Coen Brothers movies. And it's one of those things where if this movie wasn't a Coen Brothers movie, I don't think anyone would talk about it anymore because I think it's a fairly standard issue on the surface, like 1920s mob movie. Um, but because it has these this Coen Brothers pastiche attached to it, people pastiche. are – Pastiche. That was the word I was looking for earlier when talking about Michael Bay. Oh, Michael Bay pastiche. He definitely has a pastiche. That's the best part of... That's one of the best parts of Honey Boy is <laughs> the way that he's just like, this is what a Michael Bay movie looks like. I'm not saying that this is a Michael Bay movie, but this is what it looks like. There's a plane on fire. There's more planes swooping around in the background. There's an explosion. There's just, there's just fucking <laughs> chaos all the time. And I'm flying. Um, it's got... It, plays like a pastiche of Coen Brothers of what would become Coen Brothers like aesthetic tropes. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, which which they have. Which at this in 19... What? 91 is this? 90, 90. 90. Yeah. So they were just kind of developing them. And I love... Who was I listening to when they were talking about Raising Arizona? And how it's like their best movie. I don't remember. Fuck, I don't remember what it was. They were like, oh, Raising Arizona is the best movie. I was like... But they weren't even the Coen brothers in Raising Arizona. You know what I mean? They were just kind of figuring out what it meant to be the Coen brothers. And it's it's a thing that I confronted. Um, we're going to confront a little later. And I've already confronted a little bit on um, 
Inside Lewin Davis, where I think they're kind of reacting to the same thing. You know what I mean? I think if Roger Deakins makes Inside Lewin Davis, it's a much different movie. I mean, I guess almost this is like their first movie where people start recognizing like a... this is what it's maybe supposed yeah. to. This is what a Coen Brothers movie Fink looks like out, and feels like. Barton Fink comes out the next year. Yep. Yeah. And then, but then between like, like this is their third feature. But think about the Fargo. Big Lebowski. Oh, Brother, where art thou? Oh, Brother, oh my God. Oh, Brother, where art thou? But like those three movies really established like the Coen Brothers, like cinematic ethos. Like we're going to make a movie and it's going to do this. Even to like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, every single moment of that movie is just Coen Brothers. Which is the reason like people always forget about the man who wasn't there just because it kind of like also. But it's the most Coen Brothers movie. It is, but like people, it wasn't like doing exactly what people expected it to do. Well, because it, I think it's weird. That's actually a really weird comment, Mario, in the sense that I think people thought that this movie was going to zag, and it just, like, fucking zigged itself to death. Mm. You know what I mean? And, I, and that was a movie that was almost on my list. I had a really powerful man experience. Yeah, man who wasn't there. A really powerful experience seeing that movie in theaters at York Square Cinema. And um, it was because it, it just kept doing... it. Did all the Coen Brothers things? All the framing was Coen Brothers. All like how it looked. You know, I mean, Roger Deakins in that Coen Brothers book talked about man who wasn't there. It's like their most successful collaboration was was that movie because everything that they were thinking of doing, they were able to do, and in black and white. Um, which also- I think he talks about was like a very pure way of like shooting films. Yeah. Um, but it has. Obeys all those pastiches. It obeys the aesthetic rules that they had set up through all these movies. And I think one of the problems I have with Miller's Crossing, especially if you come back later to it after having seen all these Coen Brothers movies, you look for like you look for the Coen Brothers stuff, and it's still there, but it's just not. It's not doing the same work as it's doing later on in their movies. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it seems. I don't know. I. I the first, my first instinct is to say imperfect, in where it seems like fetal almost. You know what I mean? Where it's just not fully developed yet. They haven't, they hadn't developed their own voice, but they were kind of they were working on it. But because you're coming back to it, unless you saw it in real time, um, it just seems lesser. Yeah, it uh, seems like base Coen Brothers. Um, which is just not fun. Which is interesting because, like, Blood Simple seems like very developed Conan. But because Blood Simple's not a period piece, mm-hmm. like, it's just it's just a regular story. It's a it's a it's a movie. It's not trying to. It's of its time. Yeah, it's contemporary. No, that that does make sense, and I they kind of like get that voice in Hudsucker Proxy for the first time. It's weird. Mm. I'd almost argue. Like, because Barton Fink is overwhelmed by John Goodman's performance. Like, they're starting it, they're starting it down. Like, Miller's Crossing is the last Barry Sonnenfeld uh, shot film. After uh, Barton Fink is the first one where Deacons pops up onto the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but Barton Fink, I think, is just so much is just in Goodman there that Hudsucker Proxy is the first one where you kind of really see. Well, they get a good. It's funny because they use Goodman. They use Totoro a lot in movies going afterwards. Tim Robbins is a really good 
Coen Brothers actor. You know what I mean? He leaned into the emotional Coen Brothersiness of what it meant to be in a Coen Brothers movie. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just kind of zany, but um, expert. You know what I mean? Where Barton Fink is just so dark that it's it doesn't have the same lift that like the Hudsucker Proxy has it's that weird, Fargo yeah. has that, and then the Big Lebowski kind of gets to, and then Oh Brother Where Art Thou kind of goes way the fuck overboard. But it's kind of weird you never really see Tim Robbins pop back in. He talked about that a little bit on I was he was on the Bill Simmons podcast talking about Dark Waters and he talked about how much he loved working on the Coen Brothers. Yeah, he seems like a perfect Coen Brothers guy. Like fully committed to like whatever he's doing but also willing to go to that next level of just craziness. Yeah, I could see him coming back in eventually. It's weird that he didn't make it into Hail Caesar. Yeah. Burn after reading. I could have seen him being that uh JK Simmons role or the Brad Pitt character. I could have seen him doing that. Well, you know, it was originally supposed to be uh, Tim Robbins. Like, Joel Silver was really pushing for him. was uh, Tom Cruise. Ugh. Do you Jesus imagine that? Christ. Ugh. No, I can't imagine that. So speaking of, as we finish up, one of, if we're talking about pivotal film moments, The Patriot is, is a big one for me. So, the year was whenever The Patriot came out. I believe it's 2000. <laughs> that's how, that's, it doesn't even have a number. It's just the year The Patriot came out. 2000. I was super stoked to see The Patriot uh-huh. as a uh, beloved fan of, of Independence Day. You know, I wanted to see The Patriot not because of the plot of The Patriot, just because I knew Roland Emmerich was directing The Patriot, and I loved Independence Day that much, and I liked Stargate. And so I had asked my parents, you know, repeatedly, can I see, like, I want to go see The Patriot. And they're like, sure, we'll go see that. Um what happened was one night my parents got in a bit of a bit of kerfuffle, a good old argument, and my mom drove off that night. She wants to go see the Patriot. <gasps> I had to wait to see it on video. I still hold that in high resentment mm. to my mom. If okay. we're talking about pivotal film moments, not being able to see the Patriot in theaters is is number one. It's funny, Mario, that you're telling the story because I had an interesting parent movie. I like The Patriot, by the way. Just, Patriot's fine. I mean, I like it. It's the yeah. last good Roland Emmerich movie. I, you know... He went uh, through a trio of good entertaining movies. Put Jason then, Isaacs and stuff. Uh, you know, you I, I'm got, very pro Jason Isaacs, yeah. Uh, my parents... got Mel Gibson. My parents came over this weekend and they were talking... We were talking about movies. We were talking about... Showing the kids. My mom was being critical of me for showing, having shown them pieces of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. What? PG. And, uh, you were a parent and you're guiding them. My dad, that's what I said. My dad was like, oh, have you shown them who framed Roger Rabbit yet? And I was like, I feel like they'd have a hard time with the dip. Like, I just feel like they'd, like, parts of it, they'd probably eat the fuck up. Um, Watch that on Thanksgiving, by the way. But parts of it, I think they'd have, a, I think it's just, it's just it's just really dark. It's like the darkest. Yeah, I saw I saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit as like a seven year old, and the dip was the hardest part. Of the but day. here's the thing: so my mom was like, "Oh, you guys didn't see that," and I was like, "I totally saw that." I was like, "We owned that on video my whole life," and she was like, "No, we didn't." And my dad was like, "We yeah, we did," and she's like, "Oh, I wouldn't have bought that," and he was like, "We owned it." 
we had it and the and the kids watch it all the time and I was like, yeah, I definitely saw it. Like, I definitely didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it on video as soon as it came yeah, out. Yeah, Who Framed Rod, like, The Dip was one of my first exposures to, like, non-existence. Because it doesn't feel like they're just dying. I would actually... You know why? Because, like, cause, like the, the weasels... They're suffering. The, no, not even suffering, but the weasels die and become spirits. The things that get put in The Dip cease to exist completely. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, those things don't exist anymore they don't even have like a they don't go anywhere they're just gone and as a kid i was like that fucking is terrifying i mean i still don't buy that necessary i don't buy that belief at all but like that was my first like ever experience to like when something is being killed and ceases to exist see and that's the thing i went through a different if i i don't think i did i think i just thought it was exciting you know when christopher lloyd is just yelling and is Daggers are popping out of his eyes. Um, you remember? It sounded just like this. I'm going to put it in there. Um, it's intense. It's like really intense. It's it's um, It must feel like what watching, and I could talk about this in a couple weeks, like when I saw like Pulp Fiction for the first time and the idea that like someone's just going to die. You know what I mean? Like mm. the Bruce Willis and the gimp scene. Where I'm just like, holy fucking shit. Like, <laughs> I literally have no idea where this ends up. Where, but your, I'm sure it's going to be terrible. Was your mom okay with your kids seeing Acme and Jessica Rabbit fucking while they played patty cake? Oh, I don't, probably not. I didn't show it to them yet. Because that's what patty, I mean, so they doing. orgasm while playing patty cake. So they do. I mean, I hadn't actually thought about showing it to them, so... Patty cake, patty cake, patty cake, patty cake! <laughs> great movie. That's a great... That it is a great once, movie. Well, it was also a, another near miss for me. Yeah, me too. One best film editing, though. Good for it. Well, that's that's weird that the Oscars used to be sometimes co- really cool. And they did give Bourne Ultimatum, like, best editing. But I think they just... I think they give every Paul Greengrass movie best editing. Just required. I think it's the thing that they just do. Um, they retroactively gave Captain Phillips best film editing. I think they nominated it, didn't they? I'm pretty sure it was nominated, but I don't think it won. Um, but they have to go back in time now and give it to it. They'd be like, "Oh gosh, guys, we're sorry, but Captain Phillips really has to win best film editing." Oh, Captain Phillips. Man, I forgot Captain Phillips got nominated for best freaking. Uh, picture that I year. I mean, for lots of stuff. Well, one best editing that year had to be Gravity, right? Was that 2013? Um, to the yeah, 2013. Yeah, supporting the 2013 year in Oscars. Yeah, Gravity won best film editing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Twelve Years a Slave, American Hustle, and Dallas Buyers Club as the year nominees. That Twelve Ugh. Years, Twelve Years a Slave would be the only one in that group I would give the Oscar. Uh, Captain Phillips was actually pretty well edited, but I've, I'm we're not. I'm not Paul Greengrass guy. Yeah, I'm not a Paul Greengrass guy either, but at least I can respect that that was well edited. But American Hustle, Dallas Buyers Club, and Gravity fucking what? Barbo. But I don't understand what editing is happening in American Hustle. Like, it's just a bunch of, like, push-ins, Paul Thomas Anderson-style push-ins on 70s <laughs> what, era what is, Christian what is Bale. probably getting, like, 10,000 hours of David O. Russell footage and making an okay movie out of it. And by okay movie, I mean a bad movie. But they finally rewarded that exact idea with Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Um, if you want to... 
talk about how much you like Bohemian Rhapsody, please. You can please don't. type your ideas, press save on them, then you will send it directly to us by moving that link to a trash can icon <laughs> and putting it there. Or you can print it, roll it up real tight. And Stick it put it bit. in also what is a physical trash can looking thing, and it will be mailed to us. If you want to talk about other ways in which mailings could get to us, you can tweet us at Film Pivotal. Or you can send us an electronic mailing at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com. Where you can see a list <laughs> which is still a thing that I... I Remind myself keep, every week exists, and I, I keep, keep forgetting to update it. I keep looking it. at the list and essays thing. I'm going to write an essay. By the end of the year, we're both going to write essays. I that. actually think I, I wanted to talk to you about this, and we'll talk about it on air because who gives a shit? Um, I think yeah, for if, our... If, if people are still listening, they actually like this part. I think for our top 20 of the last 20 years, our number ones should get a little, should get a little blurb. Oh. What do you think about that? I think every film on the list should get a 5,000-word essay. I could do it. I've actually, actually, no, I've kidding. started doing that already. I don't think I could do that. That's how I. I could definitely do. Blurbs. It's not. Fi- I can do blurbs for all of them. I could do blurbs for all. Want to do blurbs for all of them? Do blurbs for all of them. I do blurbs for best of the year too. Well, uh, I could do. Blurbs. I, I'll start doing blurbs for everything. I don't have to do a blurb for best of the year because I have an hour-long episode of a portion of a podcast describing why my best of the year is my best of the year. Okay. I can just transcribe the end of that Claire Denis episode and say like... What you can also do is then just publish that and call it, you know, white. Yeah. <laughs> and I could I'll just be anti, anti-liberal in it. And that's it's what he did, right? Film he just transcribed parts of his fucking podcast. But then put like pro-Trump media stuff into, into it. He, I mean, to be fair, his last episode, um, and I have to show you something, by the way. His last episode was just... I don't over- want to see your penis again. <laughs> the third time. <laughs> Fool me once. Shame on you. <laughs> Fool me twice. Shame on um, you. His, Fool me three times. I guess I was asking for yeah, his, um His last episode was just reviews of Parasite, Irishman, and Marriage Story. That was the last episode of the, Bohe- of the Freddy Snell's podcast. Parasite, Jojo Rabbit, and um, oh, what was the third movie we reviewed that day? <laughs> just, he's just repeating. Oh, Pain all, and Glory. Painting, he's no, just he, repeating all of us. Pain and Glory is in Spanish. <laughs> he's not going to watch that. What are you, fucking crazy? He wrote a book called White. He's 100% not It's not called Blanc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, go oh, to we're the, still recording. Uh, we're 100% still recording. Um <laughs> Yeah, go to PivotalFilm.com, list of movies, list of beers, how to subscribe. Um, our Twitter feed is on there. Uh, you can message us through that if you want to also. Um, I have no idea what we're going to watch next week. I don't know what we're talking about next week. Talk it's about gonna something. going to be movies. Probably. So, uh, see one. Drink a beer. Maybe maybe less than 10.5%. It's officially turned into an Archie Moore's episode. <laughs> <laughs> like, by like... By, hour and 50 it turned into just Mario and Tom at the bar yeah. uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next week for sure